Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Avrami Finkelstein, currently sitting in for the one and only Nahum Siegel on this Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM. We are, of course, in a nine days format, which means the bulk of our programming is the uh, uh, wonderful Jewish history lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. And uh, this morning, we'll be starting the program. Uh, with one of the lectures from his Jewish Values series. And uh, this one is called Pleasantness, and it will take us uh, through hour number one of the program. We'll probably get to some news at about 7 a.m. and morning chizuk a little bit later in the program. And so on. We thank you so much for tuning in and joining us on this Tuesday morning. And uh, we will get right to it now. Here is Rabbi Barrel Wine, and you are tuned in to your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. This series concerns itself with, uh, what shall I say, the fifth section of the Shulchan Aruch. In back of the Shulchan Aruch uh, is God. And that's the ultimate uh, goal. And uh, the values of Judaism are uh, primary in influencing uh, the other four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. And it's primary in assessing what a Jew should be. Now, we have very high standards. And even if we don't reach those standards, at least we have an idea of what we are striving for. And the Torah does not compromise its values. Uh, the Torah is not... The Torah is willing to forgive people, but it's not willing to forgive values. By that I mean we're not allowed to change the value simply because I can't do it, or I didn't do it, or because it's hard. So for that we have a Yom Kippur. For that we have tshuva. Uh, for that we have all sorts of mechanisms that even if the person is not perfect, uh, we can somehow raise him to some level of perfection. But the Torah never compromises its values. The Torah never says, well, since you can't do it, it's all right if you don't do it. And the Torah does not mark on a curve. The Torah does not say, you know, everybody does it, so we'll give you an A. By the Torah, 60 is a 60, and an 80 is an 80, and 100 is a 100. And so therefore I felt that uh, as a series uh, we should uh, discuss and understand what these values are, their great importance, and how we see them reflected in the Torah itself. And many times we don't always see them reflected in Jews. Well, I've always said that one should never confuse Jews with Judaism. It's two different things. And we're talking here about Judaism, about Yahadus, about what the Torah represents. And we certainly should never confuse religion with rabbis. <laughs> and uh, be, it, because of that, therefore, uh, we have this uh, system of values. Tonight's value that I'm going to discuss, which is the opening one in this series has to do with pleasantness, with being nice. A trait that uh, sometimes here in Israel people say, well, he's a friar, which is the ultimate insult in Israel. 
The ultimate insult is that you let the other guy cut in in front of you in the lane. (laughs) The second ultimate insult... (laughs) So, uh, the value of pleasantness is based upon a posseg in Tehillim, and rather in Mishle, uh, that we all know, Jocheo Darche Noam, V'chol Nesivoseo Shalom. Jocheo Darche Noam, the paths of the Torah are ways of pleasantness, and uh, so even though that's a verse that we all know, and we recite it when the Torah is put back in the ark, uh, but uh, it's not meant to be merely a nice phrase. It is meant to apply to halacha and to how Jews behave. And I'm going to give you uh, eight, nine, ten examples of it tonight. This is not certainly not a full discussion of the matter, but we'll see how this value of pleasantness applies uh, in the Torah and in the Torah's outlook on how we should behave. The Sephorno, Abeno Vadio Misforno, uh, 15th century uh, Italian doctor and rabbi. There was a period of time that a lot of the rabbis were doctors, or a lot of doctors were rabbis. I don't know which, how it worked. And uh, so he uh, wrote a uh, very, very famous commentary to Chumash. Sforno is the name of his town. But he's known as the Sforno. Uh, he immortalized this uh, rather small Italian town uh, by his parish. So he discusses the halachas of Kashrus, which uh, we read in Parsha Shmini, in Chumash Vayikra. So it says, V'sachayo asher tochelu. This is, uh, these are the creatures that you should eat, and these are the creatures that you should not eat. So he says, what difference does it make what we eat? Why should the Lord be interested, so to speak, in our diet? So he discards immediately as a doctor the idea of health, which is many times advanced as a reason for kashras. Uh, whether or not it's because he felt that uh, this century's medicine is the next century's quackery. Uh, Medicine constantly changes. Or whether he felt that uh, perhaps the kosher foods are not necessarily uh, healthy foods. Having just survived Pesach, all of us can testify to that. Right? You know, it's uh, good old Eastern European Jewish food was cholesterol heaven. Kosher, but not necessarily healthy. And therefore, he doesn't, he doesn't accept health as being the reason. But he says as follows. He says that because there is such a thing as drochea darche noam, there's a pleasantness in eating. So not every food should be eaten because the food itself 
is, so to speak, a violation of the pleasantness of life. And therefore he says, Lo sitamu all of the crawling things, uh, the shellfish, etc. He says these things, it's not nice. It doesn't appeal to our aesthetics. The fact that in the world it made to certain groups of people doesn't change the fact that in God's system of aesthetics, this is not nice to eat. Therefore, he says, it says, You shall be holy. What is the definition of holy? The definition of holy is to be a pleasant person. To be able to stay away from things that are unpleasant. And therefore, he says, in the Torah, it says, You become unholy. You become defiled by eating these creatures. So the Gemara says, You become gross, you become boorish, you become unmannered, you become unpleasant by eating these things. In Yiddish you would say, You're stopped up. And therefore he says that the halachas of what to eat and what not to eat, stem from this idea of pleasantness, stem from the ideas of and he says the same thing is true in the halachas of Tara Samishpocha, of family purity, and the halachas of Zov and Nida and all and Yoledes, is all a question of pleasantness. Because in the ancient world it was a question of superstition. It was a question of, uh, of uh, somehow uh, disease. He says none of that applies. What applies here is this idea of pleasantness. And therefore, everything in life has to be done in a pleasant fashion. And therefore, he says, that's why in the Torah, we, the Torah is worried about not only what we eat, but how we eat. The Torah, for instance, is against fast foods. The Torah is against eating standing. Uh, the Torah has all sorts of, so what do they care when I'm standing? Uh, well, the Gemara says that one of, in today's world, we have different tests uh, for making matches between uh, men and women. Important items like what color tablecloth is used and uh, <laughs> other uh, major issues. But one of the things the Gemara asks is, does the person eat in the street? person that eats in the street, it's unpleasant. It's not manners. And Jochea Darche Noam requires that we eat with manners as well. The, uh, the uh, din of Mai Machronim is because of the fact they didn't have forks in the ancient world. Forks are an invention of the Middle Ages. And so people ate with their hands, with their fingers, so you had to wash off your fingers before, uh, uh, before uh, being able to uh, say Birch uh, And other things simply have to do with a pleasant way of life, 
a pleasant demeanor, an attitude of pleasantness in the world. And therefore, he takes the laws of kashras, which we would say have nothing to do with this, and he inserts it under this value, that what we eat and how we eat, the way we eat, and the Gemara says, you know, you're supposed to limit conversation while you're eating because ain't masichim besuda. Or has all sorts of... Who asked them? The Gemara is not Emily Post. It's not an etiquette book. And the answer is because it all comes under this rubric. It all comes under this title of pleasantness. And there's a pleasant way to eat. And the Torah describes it for us. And uh, this... Uh, is further enhanced by the fact that the Gemara teaches us, and it became one of the principles of the Bali Musr, and Bishroel Salanter wrote, A person is created by his actions, by what he does. We think of it in the opposite. You know, the person is this and this type of person, therefore he does this and this and this. And so Salanter turned that on its head. He said, if you will do these and these actions, then you'll become this and this type of person. And therefore, if you will be pleasant, then you, if you do pleasant things, you will somehow become a pleasant person, even if you start out being an unpleasant person. Because a person is fashioned according to the behavior, according to what he does. So we'll see that Sefurno continues and says a remarkable insight. Shemi asher midosov mikulkolos umetumtomos. You have a person that he has bad character, bad behavior, he's an unpleasant person, and he's a completely observant Jew. It's what the Ramban calls a novel Bershusa Torah. Because without the values, without the fifth section of the Shulchan Aruch, the first four are not going to do it. So he says, Balkorcho Yagia Lemaskonos Madoyos. He said, People will then come because their behavior, their attitude, their manners are bad. So after a while, they will substitute their behavior and their understanding of right and wrong for the absolute understanding that the Lord and the Torah gave us. And they'll come out lonachonos. They will do things that are wrong. The Gemara says the Jews never believed in Avodah They never believed in paganism. The Jews never believed that this idol can do anything for me. So then why do they worship idols during the entire time of the first temple? For hundreds of years. Because idolatry allowed them to be sexually immoral. And that's what they wanted. But you couldn't get up and say, I want to be sexually immoral. So you got up after a while, because you were sexually immoral, you got up and I said, well, I'm pagan. And in paganism, it's allowed. And if we'll substitute other things today, 
Uh, you'll hear it very clearly, right? I'm allowed. Because I'm doing it. So when it, I create a philosophy to justify my behavior. And therefore, he says, you see how important the Rabboni Shalom felt, Kaviyochel, in this idea of Jocheo Darche Noam, in the first chapter in Bracious, God says, Nase Odom Betzalmeinu Chidmuseinu. Now the word Naase implies that he was talking to someone. It also implies that he was asking permission from someone. It also implies that someone helped him create human beings. Naase, let us together make. Now all of that is nonsense. Because God uh, uh, has no partners. So then why does it say Naase? So Rashi already comments that the Torah is teaching us here ways of pleasantness. That even the greatest of people, even the chief justice, even the president, even the prime minister, should not take unilateral action without consulting with others. And that in order to put that lesson across, that if you want to have a pleasant society, you cannot act unilaterally, you cannot do on important issues what I want to do, but you have to speak to others and see what they say as well. So the Torah risked the fact that there will come people and say, well, look in the Bible, in the Bible it says, let us make man. So it must be that there is something else besides God. And in Christology, uh, that is used, right, as part of the Trinity, the us. So the Sephorno says, so then why did God do that? Why did God risk to put the word nasa uh, when evidently it is a word that can cause great problems? So he says, Shehechlit akorishborchu lehistakein betos philosophis. God was willing to take the risk that philosophically people will make a mistake. And they'll say, that there's more than one God in heaven. Because he wanted to teach us as Torah's ha'anova, the necessity for modesty, the necessity for humility, the necessity to consult with others, the necessity not to say, I'm the only one that knows what's right. I'm the only one that can do it. It's me. And God wanted that lesson, that value, that value of the fact that others have to somehow also be consulted, that's so important that God risked the word nasa. Because the gain from understanding that Rabboni Shalom himself, Kaviyocho, is willing to consult, that lesson is a greater gain than the risk of the loss that people will think that there's more than one God in the world. And therefore he says, 
Ki besofo shal dover. The bottom line is, Ha-hashkofos holchos achar hamidos. Behavior governs. And if you have good behavior, so then lochein im yilmedu midos tovos, then you will have correct attitudes and correct hashkofos as well, because your behavior will shape how you look at the world and how you look at others. I remember when I was in the yeshiva in Chicago uh, a few days ago. Uh, it really feels like a few days ago, you know, when you get to my age, so then all of a sudden you start remembering. You start forgetting also, but you start remembering. So in the yeshiva, I went to the yeshiva in a time when none of us had any money. No, we had an allowance, uh, a dollar a week maybe. And you had to give tzedakah from it, and you paid your car fare from it, and you bought the candy bar from it, and that was it. Because my parents had no more, and there were boys and my friends that didn't even have the dollar. So every day in the yeshiva in Davning, they, were, they, they would pass around the pushka, the tzedakah box. And the tzedakah box, you'd put in a penny, two pennies, because you only had a dollar. I mean, how much could you afford? And the tzedakah box always made noise. So, uh, you know, you're never as uh, clever and astute as when you're 15 years old. Because from then on, it's downhill all the way. <laughs> but when you're 15, you understand it all. You got, you, you got it all very clear. So I remember I went over to the mashgiach, the Rabbi Wernig, Zechitzadik, Levrocha. And I said, Rebbe, you know, they pass around the pushke, and the, everybody puts in a penny. I mean, the end of the week, you got $3 from the whole yeshiva, and it makes noise, and it's in the middle of Chazor Sashatz, and it's not nice. And uh... So he says to me, he said, well, he said, you know why we pass around the pushke? Because we're training you to give tzedakah every day. To put your hand in your pocket, and every day... He said, today you can only give a penny. He said, there'll come a day you'll be able to give a dollar. There'll be a day that you'll be able to give a hundred dollars. But if your hand is not trained, if it's atrophied, if chas v'sholem, you know, the person is paralyzed, he can't, he never put his hand in his pocket. So even when he has it, even when he wants to, he can't do it. I remember I once went with the Ponovizhirov to see a Jew who was notorious for being a miser. And I said, Rebbe, we're wasting our time. And he said, no, 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 we're going to do him a favor. He said, we're going to rice rice in the gelt for them. We're going to rip the money out of him. for the, We're doing him the biggest favor. We're going to rip it out of him. And he did. I mean, it was a masterpiece. <laughs> you know, and it was a sizable check. The man couldn't sign the check. It took him ten minutes. He picked up the pen. He put it down. He picked it up. He started the sign. He stopped. He just couldn't do it. His hand didn't write. And that's after he committed and he said he was going to do it. And he knew he was going to do it. But because he never gave, so then you can't do it. So this idea, this Sephorno says, is Drachel Darche Noam... If you live a life of pleasantness, 
So then you change yourself. And your attitudes change. Your behavior governs your attitude. But if first you want to become a pleasant person, and then you're going to do pleasant things, unlikely that it will ever happen. If you want to think through the entire uh, uh, philosophy of charity and and, uh, philanthropic behavior, it's not likely that you're going to be a charitable person. A charitable person has to train oneself. I always remember the words of the Mashgiach because of the fact that the truth of the matter is that you have to train people. We are just like all of the other in the animal kingdom as far as that is concerned, that we can be trained. That really was the idea of the Musser movement, of Rabbi Saw Salanter and the Musser movement is that he wanted people to have the values of Torah, and the only way to have the values of Torah was to train them to do things. And uh, the Muslim movement was a great success in 19th and early 20th century Lithuania. It was destroyed in the Holocaust. It has never been rebuilt. It is one of the great victims of the Holocaust, of which there are many. Not only are people victims and families are victims, and the Jewish people are victims because of what was destroyed. Let's proceed to another idea in which we see It says in the Torah, You shall not persecute Afflict, take advantage of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. So Rashi says, It's not restricted to the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. You can't do it to anybody. Why did the Torah mention specifically the widow, the orphan, and the stranger? Because they're pretty much defenseless. They're more vulnerable to people taking advantage of them. They don't have someone to defend them. And therefore the Torah puts special emphasis on the fact that you shall not oppress the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. That's Rashi's pshat. The Rambam has a different view completely. The Rambam in the Sefer HaMitzvos, he counts the 613 mitzvahs. So uh, the Rambam generally says, I will only count the mitzvah, that's a category. Underneath that category, there can be many sub-things, things that come under that, that are mitzvahs, but that's not the 613. So for instance, the Rambam has Avodah so then he counts, you know, all the types of Avodah but they are not a separate mitzvah in the 613, they're all under the general category of Avodah so the Rambam here, according if he would adopt Rashi's opinion, he would put down the fact that you're not allowed to take advantage and persecute another person. Period. And the other person includes everybody, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. The Rambam has individual mitzvahs. You're not allowed to persecute someone or take advantage of someone. That's a regular person, Odom Ragil. And then he says you're not allowed to take advantage of an almona. And then he says, another mitzvah, you're not allowed to take advantage of a yatom, of an orphan. 
And then he says another mitzvah, you're not allowed to take advantage of the ger. So the Rambam's got four mitzvahs where Rashi had one. So then why did the Rambam have four? So the Rambam saw in the attitude and the behavior towards the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, he saw a different attitude than in the attitude towards an Odom Ragil. So therefore he says as follows, Bishum Because the Torah is the Torah of pleasantness. And therefore... The halacha is, not only shall you not take advantage, that's not sufficient. To these people you have to speak nicely, softly, gently. Somebody else you can holler at. Somebody else you can, you can, you can speak firmly. But the almona, yosem, and ager... The Rambam says you have to speak dvorim rakim biyoser v'nachas. V'yisaseik b'derech hatova biyoser. And you have to treat them in the best way possible. V'yisyaches aleim biyachas hatov biyoser. And your attitude towards them has to be the best attitude possible. The Rambam keeps on saying biyoser more than what anyone else. And you should try and do more and more in this matter. Because that's So now we see that is a sliding scale. It depends who, and we'll see in a minute, it depends on the person himself or herself who's doing the action. Who is he? And then it depends on the recipient, right? Who you're talking to. And if that person, the Rambam says, is an almona, a ger, or a yosom, so then you're held to a different standard. That's a different mitzvah. And that mitzvah is impelled because of the fact that we have raised the bar of drochel darchenoam. Our definition of being pleasant has been raised. And unless we, we are aware of that, so then we miss the value that the mitzvah attempted to put within us. There's an interesting point that the Ramban makes in his introduction to the Chumash, his parish to the Chumash, the, the Torah. The Ramban, as you all know, is a great Makubo. Ramban is probably the first uh, person that put out a perush to the Torah, Alpi Kabbalah. He calls it Alpi Derech Sod, uh, the secret, or sometimes he call it Alpi Derech Oemes, the true way. But he says Kabbalah. In the int- so I mean, he says uh, Pshat. He says, says uh, his commentary uh, in the. Uh, in the rational way, but then he always adds uh, Kabbalistic ideas. The Ramban says in the introduction, and then it's a really it's strange why then he put it, he said, forget about the Kabbalah that I write in the, uh, 
in the uh, in my parish. Don't don't bother to look at it, unless you're a great mekubal, unless you yourself are immersed in Kabbalah. And he doesn't mean the Kabbalah Center in Los Angeles. <laughs> unless you are immersed in Kabbalah, he says, don't read it. It's not for you. Because the Torah is Jorcheo Darche Noam. It's the way of pleasantness. And Kabbalah is not the way of pleasantness. Because it raises us to a world that we don't understand and we don't see. And if you learn the Torah, or if you're involved in Kabbalah, and you don't understand it, and you're not worthy of it, so then... The Torah is unpleasant to you. Because then the Torah says fanciful things that you have no idea what they're talking about. And therefore he says, Al Yaharsu El Hashem Liros. Don't you, this, so this first part of the introduction is hardly ever taught. But it's the basis of a lot of problems in the Jewish world. He says, Al Yaharsu Lalos El Hashem. He quotes the Posik that the Jewish people shouldn't run up the mountain of Sinai to come see God. Ki Hashem Elokeinu Eish Ochla. God is an all-consuming fire. Who El Kanos is the God of zealousness. Vuhu Yire Es Ritzuyov Mitoroso Niflos. And he shows to those who are able to see it wonders. However, the Godol Mimcha Al Tidrishu, but what is greater than you, farther than you, more than what you are, don't search there. Bechozot Mimcha Al Tachkor, what is too strong for you, don't bother to investigate it. Bemuflo Mimcha Balteda, and what is wiser than you, you'll never understand. And what is covered from you, don't bother to ask. You think about what you have permission to think about, meaning the nigla, the revealed Torah. And you have no business with the higher elements, with the Kabbalah, with the secret Torah, etc. Because then you destroy the drochea darche noam. And that's what the Gemara says. Arboa nichnesu lapardes. Four great rabbis entered the realm of metaphysics, uh, the realm of Kabbalah. So one was uh, Shimon ben Zoma. Shimon ben Zoma uh, lost his mind, became insane from the matter. One was Shimon ben Azai, who never married or had a family. One was Elisha ben Avuya, who became an apostate, became an apicorus. And Rabbi Akiva was the only one that got in and got out whole. So again, why? Because it's not Darche Noam, right? It's not uh, the example that the Bali Musa always gave. Is that if you know if you go to someone's house, uh, it's not manners to go traipsing around the house and opening every closet, unless you're the mother-in-law. But otherwise, 
otherwise it doesn't happen, right? It's none of your business. So the Bali Musar say that the, the Torah is our house. And when you come in, we're invited into the house, so you see the living room, the dining room, the kitchen maybe, and you know, that's open for you. But to go around, what are you doing opening the closet, right? You're not, you're, you're, it's not pleasant, it's not manners, it's not acceptable behavior. So he takes this idea and applies it to Kabbalah. And he says, Kabbalah is opening the closet. So if you're worthy, if you're Rabbi Akiva, if you're a great Mikubal, if you're the Ari, okay, Mele. But for ordinary people uh, who really are not grounded in Kabbalah and who have no uh, experience in the matter, so then uh, it's just uh, ill-mannered. It's not Jachel Darche Noah. It's not pleasant. And because it's not pleasant, then you're not allowed to do it. It's not nice. We live in a time when, you know, Kabbalah is uh, just wonderful, right? Everybody's a Kabbalist. From Madonna upwards. <laughs> Everybody's into it. Everybody wants spiritual. But uh, the Torah is not made that way. The Torah is meat and potatoes. Everybody wants dessert. Right? You go to a restaurant, you order five desserts. Good. But that's also not Darche Noam. And therefore, that was always the reluctance uh, of, uh, of great sections of the Jewish people uh, to even discuss Kabbalah publicly or to have it out in the public domain because of the fact that it violates this principle of pleasantness, of Jochea Darche Noah. The Rambam says another idea of Jochea Darche Noam, all of which we see in this value cuts across all of Torah. The famous question is asked, the Ramban and the Rambam discuss it, why were the Egyptians punished? God said, Kiger Yezarachah Beretz Lolahem, you're, he told Avram Avinu that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will be slaves and they'll be tortured for 400 years. And then they'll be redeemed, they'll go out with it. So if God said it was going to happen, what do you want from the Egyptians? They just did what God said was going to happen. So the Ramban says... Uh, that the Egyptians were punished because uh, they enjoyed it and they overdid it. You can be a stranger and you can be a servant. You don't have to have a, a quota of bricks without straw and you don't have to take children and mortar them into the walls. And Ramban says that they were punished for the excess. But he accepts the fact that the Egyptians somehow had a, an excuse that they could have said we only did what God told us to do. The Rambam uh, doesn't tolerate that. The Rambam says, God didn't say they had to do it. God just, not a commandment. God is just telling Avram Avinu that such a thing will happen. It will happen, he said. But it isn't, I'm not commanding anybody to do it. 
Because to command somebody to do it is not Jochea Darchinoam. It's not pleasant. That's not me. I never command any th- that such a thing should happen. And therefore he says, the Egyptians violated the Jochea Darchinoam. He says, why? First of all, Asher Lo Yodais Yosef. They were ungrateful. They had ingratitude for what Yosef did for them. And that is the root of being an unpleasant person, is someone that has no sense of gratitude, no sense of appreciation, no sense of what was done for him. So then that's an obvious, that, that itself is a violation of the principle. And therefore... The Rambam says that they were punished, the Egyptians were punished because they had no right to do it from the beginning. And that their behavior was a violation of Jochea Darche Noam. And therefore the Makos that came against them, the plagues were justified, and being drowned at the Red Sea was justified, simply because in fact that was the fruits of their own behavior, of how they themselves worked at it. The Rambam continues regarding Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe is punished. What is he punished for? Well, he hit the rocks. So he hit the rock. So for that, you don't go in there to soil. Jewish agency was unwilling to pick him up. Why? He hit the rock. So the Rambam has a theory. Rambam's theory regarding Moshe is that's, that's the point that I made before, that since Moshe is the greatest of all human beings, so therefore his ways of pleasantness are held to the highest standard. Anger by Moshe is unacceptable. By Moshe, anger is not Rochea Darche Noam. And since it says, Vayiktsov Moshe, Moshe was angry, and in his anger he smote the rock. So it's not because he smote the rock, it's because he was angry. So Moshe violates his own principle of Jochea Darche Noam. Where do we see the Jochea Darche Noam by Moshe? We see it, he's willing to sit all day and all night and judge the Jewish people by himself. His father-in-law comes along, all fathers-in-law have better ideas. His father-in-law comes along and says, Novel Tibol, you'll waste away, this is not the way to do it. You make an administration of justice, we'll put it all together for you. And Moshe accepts it. What did Moshe think in the beginning? Everything that Yisrael told him he knew in the beginning. So the Rambam says, in the beginning he thought that Rochea Darche Noam compelled him to do it. A Jew comes and he has a problem. He has a Din Torah. And Moshe is going to say, you know, go see Shmerel. I'm busy. Go to this court. Go to the Pakid. It's not Jochea Darche Noam. I came to see you. Everybody wants to have the Din Torah by Moshe, right? Nobody wants to have the Din Torah by Shmerel. So Moshe felt that Jochea Darche Noam, being a pleasant person, he has to submit himself to that discipline, to that regimen. He has to judge every case. He has to answer every question. When I was uh, the head of the OU, uh, also a few days ago, so uh, 
I get calls from uh, uh, my mashgichim, from those uh, that were the kosher supervisors. So in California, they were three hours behind. And then I had guys in Hawaii, and I had guys in Thailand. and uh, So they'd call me two in the morning, three in the morning. He'd get on the phone, he would say, Rabbi Vine, he said, I'm calling you now, I don't want to bother you in the office. <laughs> But, you know, you got to take it, right? Because if you're, uh, what I'm going to tell them, don't call me. So then next time, you know, they'll have a crisis and he won't call me. So Moshe is always at the service of the people. And therefore, Moshe has this supreme value of Jocher Darchenom. If you have this supreme value of Jocher Darchenom, then what are you getting angry for? Who said anger is permissible? And that, the Rambam says, was the source of why he wouldn't come into Eretz Israel. Because of the anger, not because of the action. We have another example. How the Torah itself and its wording is careful about Rachel Darche Noam. You have to pay attention to the words of the Torah. <coughs> Yosef HaTzadik goes to look for his brothers. Can't find them. He meets a man in the street, in the field. And he says to them, to him, uh, did you see my brothers? You know, ten guys in black hats walking around. Did you see them? You have any doubt that the Shvotim wore them? So the man answers him, Cain, yeah, I know, that, I know what you're talking about. Shamati, I heard them say, Nelcho dosoina. We're going to Dosan. So the Gemara Darshans, the Medrash Darshans on the word Nelcho dosoina, that from the word Nochel, a conspiracy, Nochle das, they already conspired to make a law to justify the fact that they were going to kidnap and sell Yosef. And that that idea is what the Torah is telling us when it says, because who cares what, where they went, right? I mean, it's not germane to the story. The Meforshim say, Rashi is the one that says it here on the Posik. Nichle dosos. The Torah didn't say that. The Torah said simply what? We're going to Dosa. We take the words and we read into it the fact that they made this conspiracy. Why didn't the Torah say it? Because if the Torah would have said it, the whole story would be much clearer. And you wouldn't ask, why did the Torah write where they went? Who cares where they went? So he says, Mishum Jocheo Darche Noem. The We don't want to say with a full mouth. It's not nice that the Torah should write with a full mouth what the brothers were going to do. And therefore the Torah left it over only hidden in the words. So that if you want to, you can read the Parsha simply, quickly. They went to Dosan. Fine. But if you really want to understand it, 
means more than that. It means they conspired to destroy him. But the Torah won't say it openly. Rashi says the same thing in the beginning of Chumash Dvarim. In the beginning of Chumash Dvarim, so it says, Elad Dvarim Asher Diber Moshe, Shalakim Abnei Yisrael, Lifnei Moso, and then it lists all the places that the Jewish people went. Chatseros, Vidi Zahov, etc. So Rashi says, Lefishain Divrei Tochochos. Moshe is going to tell them off now, right? Moshe is again, you know, the last speech, so he's going to tell the members really what he thinks. So he's going to tell, he's going to give him tochocha. He's going to give him a hard time now. And therefore he names every place where the Jewish people sinned in the desert. But it doesn't say that. It's just, uh, just names places, right? So if you learn it simply, you know, you just pass it by. So he's just telling you, Ben Tofel, the Zohov, Chatseros, all of these different places, oases in the desert. We have another example. How the Torah itself and its wording is careful about Rachea Darche Noam. You have to pay attention to the words of the Torah. <clears throat> Yosef HaTzadik goes to look for his brothers. Can't find them. He meets a man in the street, in the field. And he says to them, to him, uh, did you see my brothers? You know, ten guys in black hats walking around. Did you see them? you have any doubt that the Shvotim wore the... You know? So the man answers him, Cain, yeah, I know, that, I know what you're talking about. Shomati, I heard them say, Neilcho dosoina. We're going to Dosan. So the Gemara Darshans, the Medrash Darshans on the word Neilcho dosoina, that from the word Nochel, a conspiracy, Nochledas, they already conspired to make a law to justify the fact that they were going to kidnap and sell Yosef. And that that idea is what the Torah is telling us when it says, because who cares what, where they went, right? I mean, it's not germane to the story. The Mephorshim say, Rashi is the one that says it here on the Posik. Nichlei dosos. The Torah didn't say that. The Torah said simply what? We're going to Dosa. We take the words and we read into it the fact that they made this conspiracy. Why didn't the Torah say it? Because if the Torah would have said it, the whole story would be much clearer. And you wouldn't ask, why did the Torah write where they went? Who cares where they went? So he says, Mishum Drocheo Darche Noam. The Cholzerak Beremes. We don't want to say with a full mouth. It's not nice that the Torah should write with a full mouth what the brothers were going to do. And therefore the Torah left it over only hidden in the words. So that if you want to, you can read the Parsha simply, quickly. They went to Dosan. Fine. 
But if you really want to understand it, it means more than that. It means they conspired to destroy him. But the Torah won't say it openly. Rashi says the same thing in the beginning of Chumash Dvarim. In the beginning of Chumash Dvarim, so it says, Eila Dvarim Asher Diber Moshe, Yishalakim Abonai Yisrael, Lifnei Moso. And then it lists all the places that the Jewish people went. Chatseros, Vedizahov, etc. So Rashi says, Lefishein Divrei Tochochos. Moshe is going to tell them off now, right? Moshe is again, you know, the last speech, so he's going to tell the members really what he thinks. So he's going to tell, he's going to give them tochocha. He's going to give them a hard time now. And we are currently listening to Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, wonderful lecture on pleasantness, part of his um, series on uh, from Jewish values. As we are coming to the top of the hour here, this is Avrami currently sitting in for the one and only Nahum Siegel on this Tuesday morning, nine days format edition of JM in the AM. And uh, we will continue uh, with the rest of, a, I don't know, nine and a half, ten minutes or so of this lecture and get to the next one. We will be having morning chizuk coming up, um, uh, I guess, at the bottom of the next hour. I uh, just wanted to see if we could get in this morning's um, news from Israel from uh, Galit Zahal. Before we do that, uh, we want to remind everyone, this is uh, America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. We thank you so much for tuning in and making the program part of your morning. And uh, let's see if we can get the Agali Tzahal coming up in the background here. And see where we are in the timing-wise. Chata student, 15 Beulie, Campus And yeah, so we'll be getting the latest news from Israel, and uh, we will get back to Rabbi Wine after that. So just hold on shortly. חמישי, <laughs> חמישי, שמונה בערב, גלי צהל. מיד אחרי החדשות, אברי גלעד עם השיח. מהדורת החדשות של גלי צהל, מירושלים. ליצן מירושלים השעה שתיים, שלום רב, באולפן רני אבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. חשד להתעללות בפעוטות בגן ילדים באשקלון, מטפלת בת 70 המועסקת במקום חשודה בהתעללות בקטינים חסרי ישע. כתבנו רמי שני מוסר שהחוקרים בוחנים את הסרטים ממצלמות האבטחה בגן ונפתחה חקירה. היא שוחררה בתנאים מגבילים והורחקה מהמקום למשך שבועיים. 
ברקע העלייה בתחלואה, קבינט הקורונה התכנס הערב, שם צפויים לאשר קיצור בידוד לשבעה ימים, ותו ירוק מרוכך באירועים סגורים. כתבתנו המדינית מוריה אסרה וולברג. בתום דיון אצל ראש הממשלה הוחלט כי הקבינט יתבקש לאשר הערב את קיצור ימי הבידוד לשבעה ימים בלבד עם בדיקה שלילית באירועים מעל 100 איש במקום סגור. תוגבל הכניסה למחוסנים ובעלי בדיקה שלילית בלבד, כמו כן השרים יבחנו שימוש בבדיקות מהירות לאותם האירועים. שביתת עובדי המינהל והמשק בבתי החולים הממשלתיים, ועד העובדים דורש כתנאי לסיום השביתה, שהאוצר יאשר תחילה את השארת 200 התקנים שנוספו בתקופת הקורונה, או צעדים ממשיים להפחתת העומס, אם לא הם מאיימים בהחרפת המאבק ובהמשך השביתה. אלי בדש, יושב ראש הוועד הארצי של עובדי המינהל והמשק, שוחח עם יעל דן. היקפי הבתי חולים גדלו, ואנחנו כבר עשרים שנה עם אותו כוח אדם. אנחנו מבקשים כוח אדם, להיטב עם העובדים, ובטח שלהיטב עם המטופלים. לא יעלה על הדעת שיהפכו אותנו לעבדים. האוצר מנסה לשבור אותנו, אנחנו בני הערובה שלהם. שר הבריאות מזדהה אותנו, והוא יודע, הוא מכיר, אתמול ישבתי איתו בשיחה. הוא מזדהה והוא מכיר את העומסים. שר המשפטים גדעון סער הודיע, אקדם חוק יסוד זכויות במשפט, מדווח כתבנו איתי שרי. מטרת החוק, להפוך את זכויות האזרח במשפט לזכויות חוקתיות. חוק היסוד יכלול את חזקת החפות, הזכות להליך הוגן והזכות לפנות לערכאות השיפוטיות. שר המשפטים הנחה את המשנה ליועץ המשפטי לממשלה למשפט פלילי עמית מררי לגבש נוסח להצעת החוק. עיריית רעננה החליטה לעתור לבג"ץ נגד ההפגנות שמתקיימות מול ביתו של ראש הממשלה נפתלי בנט במטרה למתן אותן, בטענה כי הן פוגעות באיכות חיי התושבים. ראש עיריית רעננה, חיים ברוידא, אמר לאמיר איבגי החיים פה הפכו לבלתי נסבלים. אנחנו מדברים פה היום על הפגנות שנמצאות על גדרות הבתים, בתוך חצר, שאנשים, של הילדים שמרטיבים בלילה, של אנשים שמשמיעים כביכול דימוי של אזעקות וצפירות, וילדים חושבים שהם צריכים ללכת למרחב המוגן. אנשים לא יכולים לחיות בצורה כזאת, ואם לא נתנו את הדעת אז, אני היום, כמי שחווה את זה מקרוב, בא ואומר, חבר'ה, בואו נתחיל לעשות סדר. זה לא הגיוני, זה פשוט לא הגיוני מה שקורה פה, ואנשים לא מבינים את הדברים. ארגון הברויות העולמי מבקר את כוונתו של ראש ממשלת בריטניה בוריס ג'ונסון להסיר את כל הגבלות הקורונה בממלכה. מדווחת כתבת חדשות החוץ הילי קרן. השליח המיוחד של ארגון הבריאות העולמי, הדוקטור דיוויד נברו, אמר היום כי לצמצום המגבלות בממלכה הבריטית יהיו השלכות הרסניות. וזאת בעקבות שראש הממשלה בבריטניה, בוריס ג'ונסון, הודיע כי עד ה-19 ביולי יוסרו שם כל מגבלות הריחוק החברתי, ובנוסף גם תבוטל חובת עטיית המסכות. צעד שהגדיר ארגון הבריאות העולמי כמוקדם מדי. ואצלנו רק היום ירידה קלה בטמפרטורות. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. And that was our news from Israel, from Galei Tzahal. And uh, this is Avrami sitting in for the one in Nachum Siegel currently. If you're just joining us, just after 7 a.m. on the east coast of the United States and just after 2 p.m. here in Israel, we are, almost, uh, we are most of the way through Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on pleasantness from his, um, what was it called? From his uh, series entitled uh, Jewish Values. So we are going to finish this one up. And get to the next uh, Rabbi Wine uh, lecture because we are in nine days format here at JM the AM. You can check out more of Rabbi Wine's lectures at rabbiwine.com. And of course, we thank Rabbi Wine for making this all uh, possible for us to utilize his wonderful lectures for our nine days format. So here we go back into Rabbi Wine's lecture on pleasantness. And you are tuned to uh, uh, JM the AM here at the Nachum Siegel Network.
And therefore he names every place where the Jewish people sinned in the desert. But it doesn't say that. It's just, uh, just names places, right? So if you learn it simply, you know, you just pass it by. So he's just telling you, Ben Tofel, the Zohov, Chatzeros, all of these different places, oases in the desert. Not more than that. So Rashi says, he's Kiron Baremes. They only alluded to it. Because he didn't want to insult the Jewish people. And therefore he only alluded to it. Those that get it, they'll get it. And those that don't get it, leave them alone. Because the Torah is not going to say it with a full mouth. The Torah doesn't criticize in that fashion. And so that even in the words of the Torah, the Torah itself is bound by this value of the fact that it has to do it in a pleasant way. I knew a Jew in Chicago that was in the kolel in Eishishok when the Chafetz Chaim ran the kolel. So he told me once that uh, he missed uh, one or two Storim to learn. Whatever happened, he didn't show up. So the Chofetz Chaim called him in to, uh, you know, to call him on the carpet. So he said the Chofetz Chaim turned around. He didn't look at him. He turned around. He talked to the wall, literally to the wall. And he said, I don't know. You know, some people don't come to the Seder. I don't know. How can it be that some people shouldn't come to the Seder? Then shouldn't come to learn when they should come to learn. I, I don't know how such a thing happens. And he's, and he's got his back to him the whole time. He's not talking to him. And he says, uh, it must be that there was a good reason. Because it couldn't be that people shouldn't come to the Seder when they're supposed to come to the Seder. So there must have been a very good reason. So I'm sure that the person, uh, once the reason is settled, will come to the Seder whenever he has to come. That was the speech. It's beremis to be able to tell somebody something without telling it to them. Because that's Jochel Darchinoam. There's a famous story with the Chafetz Chaim that, uh, that I heard from the Ponevizhirov, that the Ponevizhirov said that he saw it, that the Chafetz Chaim went to collect money uh, for the yeshiva, and a person came and gave him a large donation. And stuck out his hand to him, but the person was not a was not a Shomer Shabbos. At a time when most Jews were, he was not a Sabbath observer. So the Chofetz Chaim took his hand, and he looked at him, and he said, "Azad Guter Hand Zol Brennen in Gehenim." He said, "Such a good hand should burn in hell. How could that be?" So he didn't give him any musr on, on being a, a Shomer Shabbos. And in the Chofs, and the Bishpon of Israel told me the man became a Shomer Shabbos immediately. He just terrorized him. So that's Drocheo Darche It says in the Torah, Vayikru Elakim Laor Yom, Velachoshech Koraloila. The Rabboni Shalom called light day. 
doesn't say God called darkness night. By or it says the name of Hashem, Vayikru Elokim Laor Yom. Lachoshech, it doesn't say Elokim, it doesn't say anybody. Koraloila, it was called night. Because night people are afraid of. It's dark. We don't want to put God's name there. So the Torah only said, Lachoshech Koraloila. By or it says, Vayikru Elokim Laor Yom. We have a, a halacha that women are not mitzuva alperia verivia. Women are not commanded to have children. Well, if men are commanded to have children, and women are not commanded, how does it happen? <laughs> how come? Then what's the logic in the halacha? All the Mephoshim say that God placed the maternal instinct within women, and women want children and families, etc., etc., that still begs the question. So the Mephoshim say, because childbirth is a painful experience, a greatly painful experience, the Torah cannot command somebody to go through painful experiences. So the Torah says it's not a mitzvah. Aye, it happens, etc. Good, fine. That's the way the world is going to work. Excellent. But to say that's a mitzvah, I told you to do it, and then to suffer that pain... That's not Yochel Darche Noam. The Torah wouldn't do it. The Rajbam of Bova Basra says, on uh, the Rajbam is Rashi's grandson. So uh, in the laws of inheritance in the Torah, in the Parsha of the daughters of Tzlovchad, so in the laws of inheritance, the laws are that if a man has a son, then the son inherits him. If a man has no sons, then the daughters inherit. If a man has no sons or daughters... So then, the father of the man inherits. It goes up. It's always in a vertical line. But if you look in the Chumash, it doesn't say that. In the Chumash it says that the brothers inherit, not the father. So then how do we reconcile the fact that the halacha is that it's the father who inherits, and the, uh, the Chumash says the brothers that inherit. So the Rajbam says, it's drachea darche noam, that a father, should God forbid, inherit a son, is not pleasant. And therefore the Torah didn't want to write it. The Torah left it for Torah Shabal Ped, they'll straighten it out. They'll, the halacha will come out straight. But that we should say such a thing, it's not drachea darche noam. And the Torah therefore didn't want to say it. So you see that drachea darche noam governs the Torah itself. The Torah is not unpleasant. Tell you one last point also that the Gemara in Yavomas, the Gemara in Yavomas discusses a man that had two wives and they died, he died without children and one of the wives has to have Yibum or Chlitza and they, what happened with the other? The other wife went off and got married. And so it's a machlokas beishamai and beisila whether what the other wife needed that she need anything or not. So beishamai says that she also needed chalitza. She had to have the uh, the uh, ceremony of chalitza in order to marry. So the Gemara says, but she already married. So the Gemara says, but if she gets chalitza now after she's married, her husband will feel very uncomfortable with her. Because he'll think that they were not legitimately married before. 
So the Gemara says, who cares? What do I care if the husband feels uncomfortable or not? So the Gemara says, what are you talking about? Well, you can't say that we're going to put them in an uncomfortable situation. The Torah is pleasantness. The Torah is But the Gemara in Sukkah says, you're not allowed to have a lulav that has jagged edges at the side. Because you may cut yourself. The Gemara says. The Torah is pleasant. The Torah would never tell you to take a lulav that can cut you. So we see from all of this that the only way uh, that uh, a Jew can reach uh, what he should be is by applying in every facet of one's behavior in life. And therefore we say you have to do mitzvahs pleasantly, you have to treat people pleasantly, you have to treat yourself pleasantly. And the Gemara says that the whole idea of obscenities and of evil speech, etc., is because it's not darchinoam, it's not pleasant. Nobody likes to hear it. And therefore, this is one of the overriding values that uh, sets us on the path that the Torah wanted us to achieve and makes us v'yisem kadoshim kikodosh oni, allows us to at least aspire to be a holy people, and to emulate our Creator, who is also, so to speak, bound by this concept and value of pleasant. And that concludes Rabbi Wine's lecture on pleasantness from his, um, from his uh, Jewish Values uh, series. It's got six lectures in there. Uh, you can check out that lecture and others at RabbiWine.com. And we once again thank Rabbi Beryl Wine for uh, sharing his uh, vast knowledge of history and Torah with us here during our nine days format. This is Avrami currently sitting in for the one and only Nahum Siegel. We will be getting to another lecture uh, shortly uh, at around 7.30. As always, we will break uh, in the middle of the lecture for Morning Chizuk with Rabbi David Goldwasser. That's going to be in about 15 minutes or so. And uh, we've got another couple of lectures uh, lined up. Following this program, we will have JM Rewind, I believe, at 9 a.m., Look back at some classic uh, or some recent important interviews that Nahum Siegel conducted on JM and the AM. We have Album of the Week uh, coming up. There will not be a live lunch today as we are in um, nine days format. So there will just be uh, a cappella going after that uh, for you to uh, enjoy for, you know, appropriate uh, soundtrack for the days. Um, so the next lecture that uh, we have coming up with Rabbi Wine uh, will be from his, um, his lecture on family. And uh, let's see if that's also might bar- be part of this uh, series. I didn't check out on that. Uh, yeah, it is. Here we go. So uh, in his uh, Jewish Values series, there are six lectures, Pleasantness, Peace, Family, Torah, Scholarship, and so on. So today, this is where we are at with Rabbi Wine uh, discussing Jewish Values. So uh, we will uh, hear Rabbi Wine discuss uh, family now in approximately 15 minutes or so. We will be back. We'll be back with uh, Morning Chizuk. This is Avrami. You are tuned into your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Family is a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it's uh, sensitive, emotional, and uh, everybody has their own stories to tell about it. But family as a value uh, is the, one of really the basic pillars of Judaism. The Rabboni Shalom said to us, Rak eschem yodati mikol mishpachos o adama. 
your family do I know from all of the families which exist in the world. And uh, Judaism, which is a faith, uh, Jews are a nation, Jews are a race, Jews are a religion, the Jews are a family. And we see ourselves as being a family. And the family has uh, ups and downs. But a family has a bond uh, that is able to span all generations. And really that indicates more than anything else what the Jewish people are. If we were not a family, for instance, we would not have been able to accomplish the ingathering of the exiles which has taken place here in the land of Israel over the last 60 years. And people from all parts of the world, uh, different cultures, uh, different experiences, different colors, uh, different traditions. But because it's family, it's family. I uh, always uh, think of uh, the famous story with Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, in New York, uh, the Soloveitchiks are well known for their family affiliation, uh, no matter uh, what or who you are. If you're related to them, so then, uh, then they'll go through anything for you. So uh, he was uh, in his uh, heyday as a, uh, as a Rosh Yeshiva, he was saying the shir in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzchol Chonin in New York, and uh, he was a terror. I mean, he, uh, the, the students, uh, he brooked uh, no uh, comments and uh, silly questions. And, you know, you sat there in awe. And uh, once he was teaching, uh, and he explained a matter, uh, a difficult matter in the Talmud. And the student had the temerity to raise his hand and say, Rebbe, Rebaran doesn't say like that. So Rabbi Soloveitchik assumed that Rabaran meant Rabaran Cutler, the, uh, the other major Rosh Yeshiva in America, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. So he waved them off, you know, he kept on going. But the student persisted. And after another minute he raised his hand and he said, Rebbe, but Rabaran doesn't say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, fixed him with an atomic look and he said, uh, who cares what Rebaran says, right? Where, uh, and he kept on going. The student does it for a third time. He raises his hand and he says, Rebaran, Rebbe, Rebaran does not say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik is, you know, the steam is coming out from his ears. And uh, he says, I don't care what Rabbi Cutler says. And the student said, no, not Rabbi Aaron Cutler, your brother Rabbi Aaron. He said, oh, get up and say what he says, please. <laughs> the Torah saw the Jewish people as a family. And therefore, family became a value. And the preservation of family is, one could say, the primary value in Jewish life. When God chooses Avraham Avinu to be the father of our people, and the one that brings monotheism to the world, to other civilizations as well, so God does not list his piety 
nor does God list his intelligence, nor does he even list the sacrifice and the risk of life that Avraham Avinu undertook in order to promote monotheism. That he went into the furnace of fire, or the ten nisionos that he had. None of that is listed. The Rabboni Sholem says, why did I choose Avraham? Ki yodativ l'man asher yitzaveh bonov He will be able to build a family. He'll be able to inculcate it in his children and in generations that come afterwards that they will go in the path of God and they'll continue in his mission. So it makes Avraham, and we call him Avraham Avinu, Avraham our father. We don't call him by any other name. We call him our father. So what makes Avram Avram is family. And therefore the Chumash Breshis deals only with the story of family. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. So the family there also has ups and downs as misunderstandings and disputes. But at the end of the Parsha, at the end of the Chumash, at the end of the story, the Jewish people are a family. And that became our hallmark. And the Torah says, You're not allowed to close your eyes to your relatives, to your family. And therefore, uh, Jews are bound together by a bond of blood, not only by a bond of faith. Uh, that's a very, very important thing because it colors our entire attitude. It enables us, you know, somehow to be able to uh, rise above all of the problems that we have and all the differences that we have and we're a very fractious people we have always been and we're able to rise above all of that because you know it's my brother so let's hear what he has to say in our time in our generation over the last 35 years especially in western civilization in the United States in Europe here in Israel as well, unfortunately, the family has been under siege. The traditional concepts, marriage, children, family, two parents in a home, all of that has been uh, decimated. I want to read for you a uh, portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was either last Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the article was written by a man by the name of David Brooks. And he uh, imagines that he meets Karl Marx today. And Karl Marx tells him that his old manifesto, and what he said about the working class and about the uh, capitalism, etc., uh, he admits that all of that is wrong, right? That's been disproved. But he has a new manifesto. And the new manifesto, uh, he uh, writes about it, what Marx would say today. And here is one uh, 
point that he makes uh, that's really significant and significant, I think, to our conversation here this evening. He said, more than the Roman emperors, more than the industrial robber barons, the male factors of the educated class seek not only to dominate the working class, but to decimate it. For 30 years they have presided over failing schools without fundamentally attempting to transform them. They have imposed a public morality that affords them maximum sexual opportunity, but guarantees maximum domestic chaos and ruin for those who are lower down the ladder. In 1960, there were not big structural differences in the United States between rich and poor families. In 1960, more than 75% of poor couples were headed by a married couple. Now, less than a third are. While the rates of single parenting have barely changed for the educated elite, the family structure has disintegrated for those lower down the oppressed masses. Poor children are likely to live with, are less likely to live with both biological parents, hence less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a job, less likely to be in a position to challenge the hegemony of the privileged class. Family inequality produces income inequality from generation to generation. It generates crime, violence, and eventually the destruction of society. Well said, Carl. Because that's what happened. So that you have entire generations that grow up without family, without a sense of family. And without that sense, uh, the child is automatically disenfranchised, sees the world through skewed eyes, is at a disadvantage. And the Torah came to emphasize the importance of family. And therefore, amongst Jews, which were always, we were persecuted, 99% uh, of all Jews in the exile were poor. It's not like it is today. This is the most affluent generation in Jewish history. Absolutely the most affluent generation. And we take it for granted that it's supposed to be that way. Uh, but it was not that way. It was not that way uh, as late as uh, 45 years ago. It was not that way. But even in the poorest of families, there was a structure, there was a family. Somebody was home for you. Somebody cared about you. And therefore, the people could be successful. But if there is no family structure, and if it's all ad hoc, so then uh, we live in a time of great difficulties and we see it here in our country as well the crime rate every day you hear another murder uh, two murders three this was a country that never had a murder 
when they built the first uh, prison in Tel Aviv in the 1920s, so the prison stood empty for three years. They didn't have any customers. And then one day in Tel Aviv, the police finally caught a ganiv, they caught a thief. So Bialik wrote a poem in honor of the occasion because he said, now at least we're a normal people. So I said, ah, we're plenty normal. Because the breakdown of family eventually leads to the breakdown of society. It gives rise to all of the ills that we are aware of. So it says in the Torah, We will have it uh, shortly in the Chumash Bamidbar. Uh, Moshe heard that the people uh, wept. The families wept. So the Gemara says, what does it mean, Bochel Mishpachosov? It should say, Hamishpachot Bachu. The families wept. What's Bochel Limishpachosov? To the Indian, to the uh, idea, regarding the idea of family. So the Gemara says, Al Iske Mishpachosov. They wept. Because of the fact that now that they had the Torah, the Torah emphasized family. It limited them. It limited them sexually. It limited them in social values. It kept them at home. It gave them a different sense of responsibility. They wanted to have the freedom. They wanted to be of a generation that does whatever it wants to do. Everything goes. And therefore, that's why they wept. They wept over the fact that family means responsibility. And that without family responsibility, not only did Jewish people have no future, individual Jews have no future, and society general generally has no future. The rabbis emphasized family to such an extent that they said, uh, Wild things, uh, at least on the surface. The Belezer says, Bitcha Bogra, you have a daughter that's old enough to get married, and you can't find the suitable Shidduch. Shachver Avdecha, you have a slave, free the slave and marry him off to her. Now, what's that? That is the emphasis on family. The emphasis on family is such that for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises, for the sake of family. And... uh, In our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic, uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer said. Family is an overriding value. It even overrides Uh, the search for the perfect mate.
because uh, basically, uh, except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. J.M. in the A.M. Good morning, everybody. We are live. It is a, a Tuesday morning broadcast. My name is Nahum Siegel, and I'm going to take this opportunity as we uh, remind everybody that Rabbi Wine's lectures are available by uh, dialing 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Also, you can uh, go to the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com, and you could obtain hundreds if not thousands of lectures on incredible topics so much Jewish history, so many ideas, all because of the incredible efforts over the years of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, I am back. I am live. I want to thank all of our substitute hosts. I want to thank Mark Zamek. I want to thank Avrami Finkelstein, who actually was substitute hosting this morning as I was on the way from the airport. I want to thank um, Matis Weingast, of course. And um, <laughs> I'll thank myself because yesterday, in order to um, uh, present our um, uh, th- in order to present my father's uh, Hesped of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which we do on the 3rd of Av, we actually went back to an encore presentation of a jam name that included it and aired that yesterday right here between 6 and 9 a.m. So um, a big thank you to all of our substitute hosts. Extra thank you to Avrami for keeping an eye on everything. While we were away, I will tell you about the uh, adventure away uh, to whatever extent I can. In just a few minutes, let's just get back on schedule here at JM and the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zevener Beelzev Levi, and Zechonishmas Esther Basser Beelzev Levi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizor. Good morning. The Novi Yermio notes, the Kohanim did not say, Aye Hashem, where is Hashem? Our Chachomim ask, what did the Novi mean when he made this statement? After all, we know that Hashem is everywhere. Moreover, why was there specific criticism that was voiced against the Kahanim concerning this omission? The Talmud in Yuma relates that during the last 40 years before the Chorban Beis Amikdosh, the destruction of the Holy Temple, there were certain phenomena which up until that time had been in effect. However, it no longer took place. The large heavy doors of the Hechel, which up until then had miraculously swung open of their own accord in the morning and then it closed in the evening, they no longer did so. The Ner Maravi no longer remained lit throughout the entire night until the next day. The red thread no longer turned white. And lastly, the Garol Hashem, the lot for Hashem, did not come up in the right hand of the Kohen Gadol, but rather in the left. Up until that time, the lot for Hashem always came up in the right. The great Goin, Rav Yosef David, cites this particular posuk and notes that the Kohen Gadol should have contemplated what was the reason for this occurrence. The Kohen Gadol should have questioned, Aye Hashem, where is the lot of Hashem that used to be drawn 
in the right hand. We know that the left hand represents the attribute of din, strict justice. The right is the attribute of loving mercy, rachamim. Yet, Klal Yisrael didn't heed the sign. They didn't reflect upon the deterioration of the relationship with their Father in Heaven. This was obviously indicative of the general spiritual decline. This ultimately led to the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh. Similarly, in our days, when we observe the various distressing situations and the events throughout the world, we should be asking, Aye Hashem, where is the glory of Hashem? Where is our destiny that should be coming up in the right hand on the side of loving kindness? Why is it that at times our lot is switched to the left hand, the one of Din? The Chovetz Chaim once informed a group of people that he was offering a large sum of money to anyone that could find a poor person that was so impoverished that he didn't even have a chair to sit on. Eagerly, an entire group went throughout the town, each one hoping that he would be the recipient of the reward. After a few days of intense searching, the people returned to the Chovetz Chaim. They reported that although they had met many very poor people, they could not find even one person who didn't have a chair. The Chovetz Chaim sadly noted, You should know that Hashem is poorer than all of the indigent people in the world. For Hashem doesn't even have a chair that's intact. The chair of Hashem is not whole. During this time of introspection, we should remember each and every day to ask with great love and respect, Aye Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning physic. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. on a Tuesday morning broadcast. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. I am here live in our uh, NSN studios in New York City. Nice to be back, although, frankly, um, the preference is to be where we were. Uh, Stacy Siegel and I had the privilege, and trust me when I say privilege, because um, the way things are going these days, if you have the privilege to travel to the Holy Land, it is, in fact, a privilege. It is difficult to get permission to go in. I am lucky, very lucky, that I have uh, siblings living in Israel, which is one of the ways that people um, uh, do, in fact, get in, one of the ways that people do, in fact, travel to Israel. Without that, it likely would not have happened. So I'm lucky in that I have real Zionist siblings, <coughs> as opposed to the phony Zionism that I uh, adhere to. <laughs> but... but um, so that was the, and, and even with that, by the way, even with that, honestly, it's not a guarantee. Even with the first degree relatives, as they're called, there's no guarantee. So you go through the process and make sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed. And um, then sometimes you just need to depend on a nace from above, on a miracle from above to actually make it happen. And that was the case in our case. So we, uh, Stacy Siegel and I, for the first time in probably 25 years, were, we were in Israel together without other family, without our kids, etc., and, um, and not to work, which is a rarity. Usually when I land in Israel, we are working, and my staff is working from the moment we land until the moment that we uh, come back. And, um, 
and we had an opportunity to do some really wonderful, nice things. And uh, I could tell you that there are no tourists in Israel, and I mean no. I, I mean, uh, there's an exception here and there, but I mean, there's nobody there in terms of tourism. Uh, Israelis are the new tourists in Israel because they their travel is being restricted or being discouraged, so they're spending a lot of time in uh, hotels around the country, which was interesting, a really interesting dynamic, frankly. Um, I could tell you that our friends at the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem have used this COVID opportunity to just make their hotel even better, which is remarkable. I couldn't believe what I saw there, um, how efficiently they're running and how incredible uh, a Shabbat is in the hotel and how just how, how wonderful the entire experience is. So a big, big shout-out to Roni Timzit, general manager, and his staff over at the... Uh, Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. I mean, my God, did they... I, I never thought you could improve on the hotel, frankly, and they've used the opportunity during COVID to just make it even more beautiful um, and just a, a, an even better experience, if that can be believed. Those of you who uh, have been there before probably find that hard to believe, but I'm telling you, you have to take my word for it. Uh, they, have, they have stepped up their game even more, which is remarkable. Anyway, so big thank you. You know that they are our, our, bro- they are our broadcast center when we're in Jerusalem. It's where everything happens, and um, or I should say the center of our broadcast week when we're in Israel, right? And I thank them very, very much. A big thank you to the Inbal Hotel. And uh, what will happen in terms of when tourists will actually be able to regularly and with few restrictions, maybe a PCR test or proof of vaccination, go to Israel? I don't know. And they don't know. They don't know what kind of a month to expect in September with the Chagim, whether it will be filled with... Um, foreigners or not they just don't know at this point but uh, it seems every day there's some there's some type of uh, either statement or analysis from somebody in the Israeli government about um, the situation regarding COVID-19 um, and honestly and I can't blame the Israeli government it, 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 there it is not a prior, priority for them outside of maybe you know trying to help some business owners it's not a priority for them to get foreigners into the country. You, you get that from the whole procedure of trying to get in. They are not interested in the fact that we are dying to get back to Israel. They don't care. A lot of lessons learned through that, by the way. And, and this is not a criticism of them. I get it. They're afraid of another spike in COVID. But, um, yeah, makes one think about um, the inevitability, how we always talked about having an American passport, being able to leave here at a moment's notice. COVID taught us that that's not the fact. That's not the truth. You know, I got there by some miracle. And there are a lot of people trying to do, you know, a similar thing to get to Israel and visit relatives, etc. It's just not happening. Anyway, so um, the Holy Land is remarkable, as you know. I haven't been there since January of 2020, which, again, for us is a long time. I know I, know I should not take it for granted that a lot of people haven't been there in much, 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 much longer. I get that, and I appreciate it. And once the skies open up, I'll be encouraging everybody to try to make a trip and get over there. But the Holy Land is remarkable, and it was great being there. Wonderful to be there with Stacy Siegel. Wonderful to enjoy a whole bunch of areas of Israel. We had an opportunity to get to so many different areas, but uh, again, to end up with a wonderful stay at the Inbal Hotel. And... Um, I did get to visit uh, the final resting place of our dear friend, Mayor Weingarten, and frankly, that was one of the reasons we were 
so, so much trying to get there as soon as possible. I had not been there, of course, uh, for his funeral in Israel. I had not yet visited the grave, and um, I was there. I was there last Tuesday morning. A very difficult experience, frankly. Um, I had an opportunity to visit with uh, his Chavrusa, the great Dr. Lior Gottlieb. I had an opportunity to visit with his friends and my friends from Kolachai, the Goldschmidt brothers, and their families. I had an op- we, had, we had a lot of opportunities to spend time with a lot of people who were instrumental and key in the life of Mayor Weingarten, and that was really beautiful and was a... I, th- I thought each one of those encounters was a fitting tribute to him. Friends from both sides of the world getting together to talk about him and remember him. J.M. and the A.M. on this uh, 13th of July. Wow, we are really in the middle of the summer. Fourth day in the month of Av. Today is the fourth of the nine days. We're building up our nine days format as uh, we continue with Rabbi Barrel Wine uh, all the way until this coming Friday, Erev Shabbos Chazon. Uh, the Tanis, the fast, will begin on Saturday night. We'll read Eicha Saturday night. And, of course, Tisha B'Av will go uh, through Sunday, according to what I'm looking at right now. It'll go until 9.09 p.m. Sunday night in New York. So um, here we are in the nine days. And again, my thanks to uh, Mark and uh, Avrami and Matis, everybody who uh, was minding the store during my absence. It's good to be back. I'm live here at 14 minutes before 8 o'clock Eastern time on a uh, July 13th, Tuesday morning. I want to wish a mazel tov to those who completed Dafyomi Maseches Yoma. That happened last Thursday. And Hatzlacha Rabbah to those who began uh, Maseches Sukkah. That began on Friday, which means uh, today is the fifth day, the sixth pay, or page number six, but the fifth day of Maseches Sukkah. So again, mazel tov to all those who have um, embarked on Maseches Sukkah and the study of Dafyomi. And Mazal um, Tov to those who completed Yoma. I would assume that a lot of people save the Maseches Yoma Siyum for the nine days. Why not, right? And here we are in the midst of the nine days, um, uh, building up the Tisha B'Av this coming Saturday night and Sunday. A big, big hello to those up in Camp Misora. We got a lot of Camp Misora regards over the last few days. Oh, boy, a lot. Uh, spoke to a lot of, bumped into a lot of people at some connection to Masora. Yeah, even people, right, it's not not necessarily tourists, people who live in Israel, whose children are either in Masora or are uh, staff members there, etc. So that was really nice. So a big uh, hello to Ari Katz and all the head counselors and staff administration and campers at Camp Masora up in Guilford, New York. And uh, they're always an important part of our summer. Also, a big thank you to those who were at the uh, Team Israel game on Sunday, something I probably would have done if I was here, um, as they were representing the state of Israel quite well and did really well in the game, yeah. Also, kudos to those who went to Washington, D.C. An amazing way to spend a day in a very active manner protesting against anti-Semitism and... and, um, cheering for the amazing American Jewish community and its role in the um, its role in this uh, beloved country of ours, a country that's getting 
harder and harder to continue to call beloved, but we are trying very hard. Um, so to everybody who was there in Washington this past Sunday, thank you. A big thank you. It was quite a rally. I know it did attract thousands. Uh, hey, middle of July, you know, no support from schools, obviously, etc. So I know everyone did as best as possible to get their communities out. And like I said, I would assume that, well, I don't know. I just said a moment ago that I would have been at the Team Israel game, but the reality is I guess if we would have been in town, we probably would have been in Washington, D.C., I guess. I have a feeling at the last minute we would have decided to go down to Washington. Um, yeah. Anyway, so like I said, a lot of people doing a lot of good things and to see communities around the country react to a rally that uh, promotes the beauty of the Jewish community of the United States and speaks out against anti-Semitism and attracts, I'm happy to say, people from other ethnic groups and other religions to come out and make public statements against outrageous anti-Semitic behavior in this country. I, I thought that was a really amazing day to spend the day. So collect a vote to those who were able to get out there and down to Washington and participate in that way. Now, I got a note from uh, Glenn Richter. You know that if we're in the nine days, it is rare that his name will not come up. Um, I Actually, I got a note from uh, uh, Glenn, as I'm sure other listeners um, uh, who were tuned in on Monday. Uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners were confused because we were, in fact, playing a an encore presentation of a JM&AM, as I explained, because we wanted to make sure to get in the uh, eulogy my father had of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was on the 3rd of Av when it was delivered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, uh, so, so I got a note from... Glenn, after the... I'm just trying to pull it up here. Um, ah, that's the problem. I got a note from Glenn after the show on uh, on Monday. And he says, Nahum, while listening to today's rebroadcast of your 2017 program, that was the show that we played on Monday here at JMNAM, I heard you urge participation in that year's annual Isaiah Wall Tishabov Tfilot for Israel. Due to ongoing COVID restrictions, this year's program will be virtual. And I hope you could pass on the word again to your wonderful response of listenership. Below is the online flyer we are disseminating. By the way, yesterday's DC rally, Glenn writes, was a Kiddush Hashem, yet another example of a grassroots initiative finally getting the Jewish establishment on board, something you've talked about repeatedly. Yeah, there could have been more people there and online, but the car was that it was done. You know, it's funny, and, I, and Glenn, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because we, we, we sort of had a debate, um, those Jewish leaders that, um, how do I put this? Those, those Jewish leaders with whom I discussed the Washington event, uh, some of them were of the opinion, don't do the event unless, unless there's overwhelming attendance, and others were, no, put it on the calendar and do it already and let's get going. And obviously the latter is your attitude, which I admire, uh, and I was concerned maybe there wouldn't be enough people there and it would not be a good idea. But I, I, I think in the end you're right that we have to keep pushing the establishment and the Jewish organizations to take on this role of real leadership and galvanize the crowd uh, to get people to go to places like Washington, New York, and other places um, and demonstrate and rally and protest. And, yeah, even if some of them are smaller gatherings, I think it's important. Uh, nonetheless, to get them going and get them on the calendar. Uh, by the way, and, and that, it saddens me a drop, and I think Glenn knows this. It saddens me, even though it's funny, 
I may be out of town on Sunday, so it's possible I wouldn't be able to attend anyway. Uh, but there is no greater um, feeling of camaraderie among the Jewish people than when we gather together at the Isaiah Wall for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide um, on uh, Tisha B'Av. Especially when it's a Sunday, you have an opportunity to get more people there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, this Sunday, July the 18th, which is Tisha B'Av, starting at 1.45 with Mincha and then 2.45 with guest speakers, it'll be a Zoom It'll be a Zoom and dial-in uh, virtual Tisha B'Av service. Um, and now, especially with this toxic, toxic strain of anti-Semitism having been unleashed around the world in the past year, uh, it's taken hold across Europe, a former Soviet Union, now, of course, the United States as well. Um, and now more than ever, we need to gather. That, that's why I'm a, I'm a bit sad it's not happening at the Isaiah Wall, but the reality is that we should get as many people around the world together via Zoom, via dial-in, and make it a, um, a very, very robust uh, a group that shows up, if you will, for this year's Tisha B'Av um, Isaiah Peace Wall Prayer Service. Um, remember, Hamas terrorists fired over 4,000 rockets at Israel. It's not just anti-Semitism, it's war as well. While other terrorists attempt to stab and shoot Israelis in Argentina, authorities still refuse to move against the perpetration of the horrific Amiya bombing attack. There's a lot to talk about uh, and a lot to discuss. Rabbi Stephen Exler and Rabbi Avi Weiss will both be hosting the event. Make your Tisha B'Av meaningful, and you could do it this year from the comfort of your own home, if you will. <laughs> um, information. Let me give out the information email address because it's easier uh, to contact someone by email than to have me try to give you the Zoom link over the airwaves. If you want the Zoom link for Sunday to participate in the Isaiah Peace Wall Tisha B'Av service, it's Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, S-H-U-L-I, at thebuyit.org, thebuyit, B-A-Y-I-T.org. You'll get the Zoom link, the dial-in information, spread it around. Right, It's easier to spread it around through social media than, than me reciting it to you. Uh, and let's make it a big crowd on Sunday, no matter where you are. I might be on a plane Sunday afternoon. If I am, obviously I would not be able to participate. If I'm not, if I'm on the ground, I hope to participate. Uh, again, the email for this Sunday Tish above and the Isaiah Peace Wall service. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, S-H-U-L-I at thebuyit.org, at thebuyit, B-A-Y-I-T.org. Send an email. You'll get the email back with the exact information, the Zoom link, etc. and that'll be that. Well, it's good to be back. I, I do like being in the Holy Land, and especially now when it's so difficult to get in, believe you me. Um, I do like uh, being in the Holy Land, but uh, I also like being in our, at our home base here in New York City and uh, and getting back to important things. Oh, by the way, a um, a very special hello to listener Hadas Emuna, Hadas Emuna, in Petach Tikva, Israel. Hadas Emuna, Boker Tov to you, or actually Tzaraim Tovim to you, from all of us here at the JM and the AM. Um, taking a look at some of this more. Oh, Ralph has already welcomed us back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um. Listener Judy Landy, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Trucker Yitz. I know Trucker Yitz. It's a, it's an argument between me and Rabbi Yudin. Rabbi Yudin says not to save 
the Masech the Yuma Seum for the nine days. And I'm like, you know, maybe it's not such a bad idea. Although, of course, I will always defer to the rabbis on this issue. But it's funny you bring it up because now that you brought it up, I do remember Rabbi Yudin not advising uh, in that way. It's a Tuesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. Uh, we're live on this July 13th, the fourth day of the nine days, the fourth day in the month of Menachem Av, the year 5781. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can also go to the web at rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, rabbiwein.com. And right now, and I want to thank Avrami for starting it, Rabbi Wine is in the midst of a lecture entitled The Family. Right, it's a lecture about family. Again, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. This is on family. The emphasis on family is such... That for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises, for the sake of family. And uh, in our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic. Uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer said. Family is an overriding value. It even overrides uh, the search for the perfect mate. Because uh, basically... Uh, Except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. So we're going to have two sides to the question, uh, which the Gemara discusses and does not ever come to a conclusion. One side of the discussion is uh, not to bring into one's family people that are not proper. They will disrupt the family. So the Gemara teaches us, for instance, Echod minoachin shenoso isho sheno geneslo. There's a family that one of the sons marries a woman who is not proper for him. Now, Eino Hogeneslo, in its uh, Talmudic sense, in the sense of halacha, means that she was forbidden to him. It's a relationship which the halacha forbids. But in its broadest sense, it means it's just not fitting. It's not right doesn't belong in that family. So the Gemara says, Boyin Bnei Mishpocha, it was the custom. 
in the time of the Talmud. The other members of the family came, Umevin Chovis Mleo Peros, and they brought a barrel, a bushel full of fruit. And in the mid, they would put it down in the middle of the street. Everybody would then be looking, and they would break the barrel or break the bushel open so that the fruit would roll on the street. And people would say, Mazer, what, what is that about? The Omrim, and they would say, Achenu Yisrael, our brothers, the children of Israel. Shimu, listen to us. Achinu Ploni, our brother, so and so. And they said his name. Noso Isho Sheino Geneslo has married a woman that's improper. As, therefore, he has damaged our family. And he's damaged the society as well. And we want you to know about it. And we see in the Gomorrah, we'll see in a minute that the Gomorrah is in favor of uh, public acknowledgement that it was a mistake, rather than to cover it up. Because by covering it up, there's an acquiescence to it. I have this que- I've had this question so many times in, uh, in my rabbinic career. It's tragic, but it's the question that exists, and certainly in the American rabbinate. Right? This, he's an Orthodox Jew. you got a cousin... The cousin is going to marry a non-Jew. And his aunt, uh, who is his beloved aunt, and who went to every birthday party, and, uh, you know, and they always had, his aunt insists that he should come to the wedding. They should go, because what can we do? We have to make her closer. We have to bring her, you know. uh, Shall he go? So my answer was always a resounding no. They can do what they want, but you don't have to be part of it. And so then I would get a call from the aunt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I always ended up the villain. But this Gemara shows us uh, that... Uh, you know, that if we have to break the bushel in the street and say it's not proper, it's not proper. There has to remain some standard of what a family is. And if everything goes as it does in today's world, there is no standard. So then, my, so then what's the noise about? How, how can you uh, begin even to attack the problem of intermarriage if you accept it as a fact and you accept it as uh, something that uh, in many instances is even overlooked. I even had a worse scenario, but that was when I was younger, so I was, uh, you know, when you're younger, you know a lot. As, as you get older, you know less and less. So I was really uh, young then. I think it was the first or second year that I was in the Rabbonus. And someone came to me that uh, uh, their relatives uh, were having a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah was going to be celebrated in a non-Orthodox congregation. And what should we do? So uh, I told them not to go. 
so they said, how can we not go? It's our relative, and it's a close relative, and everything, and we won't go to Davin there, and they yeah. I said, yeah, I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You asked me what, uh, you know, my opinion. That's my opinion. And what happened is that they didn't go. And because they didn't go, it made such an impression on the other relatives that eventually the other relatives became orthodox. Now, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. <laughs> but this is an absolute true story. And it's all based on this Gomorrah, right? Without the Gomorrah, I would hesitate to say anything, because how do I know? But the Gomorrah says that for the preservation of the standards of family, it should be dealt with strongly. It should not be covered over. And even though it's an embarrassment, you know, imagine, you know, you go break a barrel of fruit in the middle of the street and you make such an announcement, you know, not nice. But we are looking for an overriding value here. And the overriding value is the preservation of Jewish family and Jewish home. And improper marriages, halachically improper marriages, are not the way to secure family or to secure Jewish survival. And Chazal therefore said, Oilol leposeh lezaro ulepogem es mishpachto. Woe to someone who through his behavior uh, makes his generations pasul, really meaning that he hurts their pedigree. And Lepogem is Mishpachto, and the entire family suffers thereby. Well, we have a great Gemara that says, the Gemara asks, the, the Gemara was discussing uh, uh, the fact that uh, the Romans executed robbers, uh, smugglers, uh, people that did things illegally. And uh, so the Gemara asked, well, you know, the robber, the smuggler, he's got it coming to him. But why should the rest of the family suffer thereby? In other words, in God's system of justice, when the criminal is punished, so uh, let the criminal be punished. I mean, why does the mother have to suffer? You know, we see always that the, the, the son is a murderer and the mother says he's a good boy. Because that's a mother. So why should it be that the family should suffer as well? The Gemara says a frightening thing. The Gemara says every family that has criminals in the family cover up for them. They cover up. So it's very hard to... Uh, you know, to go against your own flesh and blood. And it's very hard to look realistically at your own flesh and blood. And so what if he's a smuggler? But the Gemara says that since they cover up for him, so therefore they undermine the whole sense of rectitude that exists within the Jewish people, and therefore they are also part of the punishment. So we have here almost a collective guilt not just the guilt of the criminal, of the person alone, uh, but the guilt of everyone around, because we tolerate it. 
Uh, we could say that about our society here also. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are wrong, that we're embarrassed about. But uh, who wants to get mixed up? Who wants to say anything? But though we who tolerate it are also tarred by that brush. You know, we are also damaged by it. You know, we are, so to speak, part of the corruption also. And the Gemara is very, uh, very strong in this area. Makes very, very few allowances. Because of the fact that, again, this is the overriding value That's one side of the coin. Right? So one side of the coin is uncompromising, right? Now, you have the other side of the coin uh, to protect my family. Gemara says a case in the Dorim that a man comes before the Bezdin and he said, I, uh, I uh, pledge to become a Nozir to take the vows of Naziru to be, uh, uh, you know, to uh, not to shave for 30 days and not to drink wine and to be celibate and to stay away from all troubles. I take all of that upon myself on the condition that I will not reveal what I know about my family. I won't reveal what's wrong with my family. Now, the rule is that we go to all lengths to prevent people from becoming a Nazir. The Gemara says that uh, Shimon Atzadik, the great Kohen Godel, uh, never participated in the uh, sacrifice of a Nazir because he said, uh, isn't it not enough what the Torah forbade for you? You've got to make it more yet, right? The, the Torah said that... Uh, you know, uh, you can drink wine, and you don't want to drink wine. The Torah said that you can you know, take a haircut and be uh, presentable, and you want to be unkempt. The Torah, therefore, he would not participate, except there was one case. One case, he said, where he felt that the man was truly a Nazir, and he took upon himself the vows of Nazirus in order to prevent himself from sinning. The Gemara says that he was uh, so handsome and that, that, it was, uh, that like it was impossible for him to resist on his own the evil inclination. And therefore, in order to strengthen himself, he took upon himself the vows of Nazir. So that was the only time that Shimon Atzadik said he saw a legitimate Nazir. So our public policy is to be against the Nazir. Here comes a man before us. And we can get him out of being a Nazir. We just have to say, okay, so tell us what you want to tell us about your family. The Gemara says just the opposite. Yehei Nazir velo yegale mishpochas. Let him be a Nazir. And let him not break the confidence of his family. So here you have an exact opposite of what we had before. Before, you know, you take a bushel of fruit and you're breaking it in the middle of the street and you're saying, you know, my brother so-and-so, he married a woman that he shouldn't have married when we said before that the, he's a smuggler, you know. And here the Gemara says that, well, don't reveal anything. So 
the Mephorshim discussed this, the commentators to the Talmud. It's discussed what to, how to reconcile, if it's reconcilable. Uh, but the general rule is, what will preserve the family? What is in the best interest of the family? So there are times that the best interest of the family is to make a whole tumult about it and to reveal and to, and to make accusations, and that will save the family. And there are times that what saves the family is to be quiet about it. How do you know what to do when? So that we have no instruction book. Because that's true of most of the Torah. And most of the Talmud, certainly, we have conflicting ideas all the time. Different policies. So how do I know which policy I should follow? So if you're blessed with a great rabbi or a Hasidic mentor, uh, someone to ask, so then um, their advice could be valuable. But even then, the decision is always ours. And that's really what makes life interesting, is because we're not certain that we have ever made the right decisions. The Talmud tells, that, tells us that regarding Joseph and his brothers. Now, there's a family matter. Why did a brother sell Joseph? What's, what's got into them? They see him as a threat to the entire family. He speaks evil about them. Uh, he estranges them from their father. He invents stories about them. He's, he's a danger. The whole family will be destroyed by this 17-year-old uh, teenager who, uh, you know, has no sense of proportion as to what's going on. And therefore they decide that in order to save the family, they have to destroy the brother. So we all know the story. They sell him. 22, year late, 22 years later, they meet him. And at the end, he says to them, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef. I'm the one that you sold. So in the Gemara, it says that the brothers couldn't, the brothers were in shock. They were traumatized. They couldn't respond to him. So the Bali Musers say, the great men of the Muslim movement, they say what was part of their trauma, aside from the shock of seeing Yosef, was that until now they had thought that they had done the right thing. Until now they were convinced that they had saved the family. And because they were convinced that they saved the family, they were willing to put up with Jacob's grief all the years to see their father weep and weep, and they knew the truth, and they never told it to him because of the fact that they were going to save the family. They were going to save the future generations. Now, all of a sudden, he says, Ani Yosef, here I am, and you all got to come down here, and I'm going to save you and bring my father down, and here's Binyamin, my brother. So then they realized that they made a mistake. Instead of saving the family, they almost destroyed the family. 
And therefore they were frightened. Uh, the Gemara says, Woe to us from the day of judgment. Because the brothers were going to come to heaven and say, we saved the family at all of this expense and pain and everything. But look, we saved our family. We have a mitzvah. And now the mitzvah turned into an avera. The positive turned into the negative. And the Torah purposely tells us that story to realize uh, that it's treacherous ground that we're on. It's not simple. There are many times in families where uh, there's a child that requires special needs. So many times in such families, the other children, uh, to a certain extent, are neglected because of it. How do you make such choices? How do you know what to do? Now, life is difficult. Family life is doubly difficult. But the overriding value here that Chazal emphasized is that a person has to do what is good for the family. Sometimes it's clear. Most times in life it is not clear. Most times it is confusing. And therefore... Uh, Counselors, uh, experts, uh, spiritual uh, leaders are necessary to help us, that we should have some sort of idea of uh, which side uh, this matter falls on, what we should do. The Rabboni Shalom, the Gemara says, is proud of the Jewish family because it has yichas. Uh, Yichus, in its popular sense, uh, means that uh, you're uh, descended from the Rothschilds or that uh, your grandfather was a great Rosh Hashiva or something like that. That's the uh, Rebbe, that's Yichus. But the Gemara doesn't, the Gemara is not talking about that kind of Yichus. Again, we're going to see here two opposites. I want you to leave this lecture thoroughly confused. <laughs> and I have the great ability to do so. So, Yichus in the Gemara means that there is no uh, illegal, non-halachic marriage in the family. That's what Yichus is. That's the bottom line of Yichus. And the Gemara says uh, that the Kohanim, when they got married, would check back certain amount of generations. And the Gemara said that if there were certain presumptions regarding uh, a family, so then that was su sufficient. You didn't have to check anymore. But Yichus is important. And therefore, the Gemara says that the Rabboni Shalom, so to speak, cho chose the Jewish people because we have a book of Yichus. And when the nations of the world came to complain that God is not fair in somehow choosing the Jewish people and dealing with them, so he said, Aviu lefonai sefer yichuschem, bring me your yichus book. Well, the nations of the world, uh, the yichus book is pretty uh, blotched. And that's why it says, Hovu l'ashem mishpachos amim. Bring to God, show me your families. Show me your sense of families. 
And therefore, uh, Yichus became very important. The Gemara says, Ashchina shore rak al mishpochus miuchos shevi Yisrael. The Shechina descends only on Jewish families that have Yichus, that do not have within their family improper marriages, improper relationships. And then the Gemara raises the ante. The Gemara is much in favor that when a man looks for a spouse, he should marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Le'olam yimkor odom kol lo, the Gemara says. A person should sell everything that he has. So it doesn't mean only to sell everything. It means he should overlook many things. And he should go and marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Of a, of a Torah scholar. Rashi there says a terribly practical reason. Rashi says because if he dies, she'll raise the children to be Jews. Others give more, uh, what shall I say, more attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners. She saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But the Bas Talmud Chochem is, uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed in these matters. The fact that our world is uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what, what what's right. So, Yichus is important. I'll tell you a Gemara that, 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 you know, that to me always shocked me. The Gemara says, A person should always look to come into a family of goodness, of good people, righteous people. What's the proof? Sharei Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Shenoso Bas Yisro, that he married into the family of Yisro. So Yisro is a Ger Tzedek, and Sipor is certainly a Tzitkonius. But it's a Gornit Geholfen. Yotzer Mimenu Yonason, he had a grandson that was a priest to idolatry. It says in the Tanakh. Yonasons, it says Ben Menashe, but the Nun of Menashe is written outside the line, on top of the line, because it's Ben Moshe, but the Tanakh didn't want to say it fully. So therefore they said Menashe, but they put the Nun on top, so if you understand, you understand. If you don't understand, you don't understand. But Moshe Rabbeinu has a grandson. I mean, think about it. Pel Peadaberbo. The greatest of all human beings. 
So he has a grandson that's uh, a priest of Odazora, right? The Aaron, his brother Aaron. So Aaron made the eagle. Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron is blemished. Aaron himself, while Moshe is not. Shenoso Elisheva Bas Aminodov. He married the daughter of Aminodov, the prince of Yehuda, the father of Nachshon. And therefore, Yotza Mimenu Pinchas. So his grandson is Pinchas, that's going to be Makari Shem Shemayim. That the Rabboni Shalom will save an Asati Lobrisi Sholom. I have a special covenant of peace for him. So, I mean, the Gemara is a shock, right? I mean, who would say this? But the Gemara wants to emphasize the importance of family. So if you marry into the family of Yisro, so even if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, Yisro's genes come down somehow, you know, just like there are genetic qualities that exist in the physical world, right? The doctors today say that from our DNA, they can almost predict what's going to happen to us. I don't like to go to such a doctor. <laughs> but they can predict. Because we are uh, within a certain genetic box, right? There are exceptions. Rabboni Shalom uh, still runs the show. But basically, uh, you know, it's pretty clear what's going to be. Well, just as there are physical f genetics, there are spiritual genetics as well. That's one of the beliefs of the Jewish people. There are spiritual genetics as well. And so, therefore, Yisro and his family, that's a recessive gene. The Gemara says that, that how did Abraham have Yishmoel because he had a father, Terach? And how did Yitzchak has Esau? Because he had a grandfather, a great a grandfather, Terah. So it's a gene in you. And in, in Kabbalah, they talk about the bureau, about clearing out the genetics, pushing the recessive genes out completely so they don't exist. They. Uh, when the Jewish people went out from Egypt, there was an Erev Rav that went out with them. whole mixture of people, and they, we all were, they all got swallowed into the Jewish people somehow over the ages. So a lot of what you see in the Jewish people today is that those are the genetics. That's part of the hesitation that exists regarding conversions. You know, we say mass conversions, right? You know, we got 300,000 non-Jewish Russians here in the country, you know, put them all into Teddy Stadium and we'll do it one, two, three and get it over with. Because they fight in the army, they're good guys, they're fine people, and they came here, and they speak Hebrew. So let's do it. But Jewish people have different sensitivities have a different, different history. And therefore, you have to be careful. And you have to be exact. There's no such thing as mass conversions. There's conversions of individual people. 
that are zolcha to come under the shechina. And therefore, you have this uh, wariness, so to speak, about yichus. I mean, today it's stretched beyond, uh, you know, like uh, what color tablecloth do they use or something. Right? That, says no, that has nothing to do with the Talmud. That's just, it's, it's almost absurd. Now, let's see the other side of the coin, after we made this point. The other side of the coin, uh, Omar David Lifna Kodesh Borchu. David HaMelech says to God, again, the Medrash puts it into David's mouth, puts this conversation in order to make the point. Ademosai heimisragzin olai viomrim... Lo posulu. They, they still say about me that I'm posulu because he came from Rus. And the, in the Torah it says, Lo yovo Ammonium Moavi, from someone from these two tribes, from Ammon and Moav, was not allowed to convert. So the, the Shmuel and his Bezdin were the ones that made the halacha that they said. Amoni velo Amonis, Moavi velo Moavis. The males are not allowed, but that the females, the conversion is legitimate. So Rus is therefore a legitimate convert, and she becomes the wife of Boaz, and their great grandson is David. But everybody in the street says he's possible because he comes from a Moabite woman. They don't care what the rabbis say that what, Amoni below Amoni. You know, the rabbis, they can do what they want, right? But we know better. So David says, how long do I have to take this? That they say that I'm apostle, that I'm of no value. If you'll think about it, it's a very fluky story. Boaz is in his 80s. She's a young woman. Great grandfather, Tara. So it's a gene in you. In, in Kabbalah, they talk about the bearer, about clearing out the genetics, pushing the recessive genes out completely so they don't exist. They, uh, when the Jewish people went out from Egypt, there was an Erev Rav that went out with them. A whole mixture of people, and they, were all, they all got swallowed into the Jewish people somehow over the ages. So a lot of what you see in the Jewish people today is that those are the genetics. That's part of the hesitation that exists regarding conversions. You know, we say mass conversions, right? You know, we got 300,000 non-Jewish Russians here in the country. You know, put them all into Teddy Stadium and we'll do it one, two, three and get it over with. Because they fight in the army. They're good guys. They're fine people, and they came here, and they speak Hebrew. So let's do it. But Jewish people have different sensitivities, have a different, different history. And therefore, you have to be careful. 
And you have to be exact. There's no such thing as mass conversions. There's conversions of individual people uh, that are zochet to come under the Shechina. And therefore, you have this uh, wariness, so to speak, about yichus. I mean, today it's stretched beyond, uh, you know, like uh, what color tablecloth do they use or something. Right? That, says no, that has nothing to do with the Talmud. That's just, it's, it's almost absurd. Now, let's see the other side of the coin. After we made this point, the other side of the coin, Omar David Lifne HaKadosh Baruch David HaMelech says to God, again, the Medrash puts it into David's mouth, puts this conversation in order to make the point. Ad emosai heimisragzin olai v'yomrim, they still say about me that I'm apostle because he came from Rus. And the, in the Torah it says, from someone from these two tribes, from Amon and Moab, was not allowed to convert. So the, the Shmuel and his Bezdin were the ones that made the halacha that they said, Amoni velo Amonis, Moavi velo Moavis. The males are not allowed, but that the females, the conversion is legitimate. So Rus is therefore a legitimate convert, and she becomes the wife of Boaz, and their great grandson is David. But everybody in the street says he's Paul, because he comes from a Moabite woman. They don't care what the rabbis say that what, Amoni below Amoni. You know, the rabbis, they can do what they want, right? But we know better. So David says, how long do I have to take this? That they say that I'm apostle, that I'm of no value. If you'll think about it, it's a very fluky story. Boaz is in his 80s. She's a young woman. She's a Gioras. You know, Boaz is the head of the Sanhedrin. I mean, it would be the lead story in Yediot. <laughs> Fluky story. And they say also that what? That I'm not worthy not only not to be the king, I'm not worthy to be a Jew. I'm not legitimate. So I say to you, God, listen to him. Afatem, I say to them, Lo bosem achios. Didn't Yaakov marry two sisters? How did he do that? The Aftomor, Shalokho Yehuda, and how about the story of Yehuda and Tomor? Right? So that's not the first thing the Shatchan would tell, right? This story. So he says, if I'm apostle, then everybody's apostle. That's what he's saying. And in fact, what he's saying is that there is no family. 
that if you dig in long and hard enough, you're not going to find something. So therefore, leave it alone. Don't stir up, you know, don't pick up all the rocks because you never know what snake you're going to find under it. Now, in Jewish history, there are all sorts of crazy stories that exist. But for instance, among the Iranian Jews, there was a town, Meshed, uh, that existed in Iran that 300 years ago, the uh, Muslim rulers forced the Jews in the town to convert. But they did not convert to Islam sincerely. And uh, they remained as Jews, and then the decree fell off. But amongst the many, many Iranians, even until today, they won't marry anybody that came from that town. And that's hundreds of years ago. Or in Poland there was a story of a woman whose husband was away for many years and somehow she became pregnant. And she said, Deus, Deus ex machina, the God did it, right? Came from God. An angel came, a, a shed, a spirit, right? And, you know, in the small Polish town, so, uh, you know, a lot of these stories went over. So there also, for hundreds of years, nobody would marry anybody from the town. Because maybe they got mixed up into that story. So Bedovid said, you know, if you want to start with me, I'll start with you, right? So how did Yaakov marry Rachel and Leah? And how did Yehuda marry Toma, right? You're worried about Boaz and Ruth, so let's go back. And then the Gomorrah says, even further, the Medrash says, Avram Avinu, Avram Omar, after the Akedah, so the Medrash says, Avram Avinu said, I have to marry off Yitzchak. So he calls in Eliezer, and he sends him to Padan Aram. But the Medrash says, before he sent him to Padan Aram, Omar, he said to the Rabboni Shalom, Asienu mibnos oner eshkol amamre. I got women here. The oner eshkol amamre are my uh, friends. They're my converts. They're my students. They're holy and good people. They have daughters. I'll marry them off to my daughter. I'll marry Yitzchak off to their daughter. Why do I have to go somewhere else? Shehem Sitkonios, the Medrash says. They were pious women. But they had no yichas. Whereas Rivka had yichas because she came from Avram Avinu's family. She came from Nochor. So Avram says to God, What do I care about yuchsin for? I, why, you know, you see this wonderful girl here? She's perfect. So Avram Avinu is willing. Uh, so God has to tell him. You know, you, you, the God doesn't deny what he says. God says, oh, we just got news that Rivka was born. Rivka is the one for you. That's the, the one that's bashert for it. Yolda, Milka, Gamhi, Bonim, Lenochor, Achicha, right? Rivka, Achosim. Rivka, the sister, also was born. So here they have the other side of the coin, right? We look at the person. We don't look at the yichas. Avram says, what do I care about the Yichas? Let's see what the person is. 
So here again, you have two opposites. Again, what's the reconciliation here? Who's best for the family? Who will build the family here? Who will make the family whole? Who will see to it that the family will exist? So we see from all of this that the Talmud held that family was a role model. And family is the source of all education. That's the idea that of the article we read before. If there's no family, there's no education. So you send them to school, school is not the best place for education. Chazal say, Shinanton Levonecha. Parents should teach their children. That's the way it's supposed to be. And family is also purpose and future. The family uh, is the, the entire uh, vista of life and of immortality. So we have seen, I hope, that family is this cardinal principle, this overriding value in Jewish life. It defines us as a people, and it gives us an ability uh, to survive over all odds because the strength of the home and the strength of the, of the family is truly the strength of all of Israel. I want to thank you for coming tonight. J.M. and the A.M. are by Beryl Wine on the topic of family. His lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You could also... Um, you go to the web, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, rabbiwein.com, <clears throat> for information about Rabbi Wine's lectures. My name is Nahum Siegel. Good to be back in our New York City studios live on this a Tuesday, the 13th of July, the fourth day in the month of Menachem Av. Today is the fourth of the nine days. We will... Um, continue in our nine days format until uh, the completion of this week. And of course, um, Sunday is Tisha B'Av, Monday is the 10th of Av. So uh, knowing us, we will likely present stories of the great Rav Shlomo Kalbach, which has been our tradition on the 10th of Av for a long, long time. And it's good to be back. Uh, I want to thank um, Mark Zamek. Avrami Finkelstein, Matis Weingast, everybody who had a role in keeping us going during my absence. Stacy and I had the opportunity, a, a miraculous opportunity, frankly, to get to Israel and to be there for the last few days. <clears throat> and um, not an easy task. The Israeli government, and who can blame them, is trying to keep as many people out as possible. And we had a, um, in all seriousness, a just a miraculous... <laughs> Every time I think about it, uh, a miraculous episode that allowed us to get in, in addition to the fact that we have uh, direct relatives there. And we had an opportunity to spend some time there. A big, big thank you to the Inbal Hotel. Roni Timzit and his staff, uh, as usual, treated us royally. Uh, usually my staff gets treated royally. In this case, uh, my wife and I got treated royally. And, um, and my family. We had others besides... Uh, Besides us there. Anyway, a big, big thank you to um, to Roni Timzit, everybody at the Inbal Hotel. Just an incredible uh, stay uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, half of our trip was in Jerusalem. That's where we stayed at the Inbal. And uh, what they've done with the hotel, one would think during COVID they may have lost a step. It's amazing what they've done. 
completely renovated the fifth floor, um, pivoted, as so many people enjoy that word these days, uh, to uh, get to a point where 99% of the hotel is Israeli because obviously foreigners aren't coming in and catering to that audience and getting ready for the foreigners to eventually return. So a big, big thank you. Uh, I did have an opportunity to visit the grave of our dear, dear friend and staff member, Mayor Weingarten. Uh, That happened one week ago today. It was uh, quite an emotional experience. And um, as I said earlier, it was good that we had an opportunity, not at the cemetery, but on other occasions during the trip, to uh, reunite with uh, friends of ours who were friends of ours and continue to be friends of ours because of Mayor. That was extra special and really, really beautiful and nice. Um... What do we have here? It's a quarter before the hour. We're going to get started on uh, one of our by Brian's uh, lectures regarding the essential classics. We'll do the Mission of Brewer. Those of you who are not uh, familiar in the early part of the uh, 20th century, the Chavetz Chaim um, wrote a commentary on what had been a hundreds-year-old codification of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, he called his commentary the Mission of Brewer. Rabbi Wine will discuss that. Yeah, just about, oh, yeah, around 100 years ago. All right. Maybe a little, maybe a little longer. Um, so that'll be coming up next. And again, Rabbi Wine's lectures at one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N and RabbiWine dot com. Um, someone mentioned the Team Israel and that they beat the Boulders last night up in Rockland County. Their next game is going to be in Hartford, Connecticut tomorrow morning, and then another one in Hartford, Connecticut on a Thursday morning. And then another one in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on uh, Friday morning. Yeah. And, of course, we keep making a big deal about the fact that Sunday's game is at 9.13 p.m. They will not pl- They refuse to play on Tishabov in Bethesda, Maryland. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, they're in Aberdeen, Maryland at the Ripken League All-Stars on the 19th of July. So everybody down there on that Monday in our listening area of Baltimore and its surroundings. Try to get uh, over there. And Central Islip, New York, will be their final game against New York's finest on the 20th of July, starting at 6.35 p.m. Information about all of this, IsraelBaseball.com, IsraelBaseball.com. Also, I mentioned that, um, uh, and I spoke about this extensively earlier, Glenn Richter um, contacted me in the uh, virtual Isaiah Peace Wall Prayer and um, presentations will take place on Zoom this year. I look forward to the time when it's back to a regular appearance at the Isaiah Wall on 43rd and 1st. But anyway, uh, it's going to be by Zoom. If you want information about the um, about the Zoom link and how you can participate this coming Sunday, Tish above and what is always a very inspiring service and presentation. Um, Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, S-H-U-L-I, at the Bayit. Oh, now I have to look if it's .com or if it's .org. Hang on. I knew I forgot something. Glenn is probably screaming at the app right now if it's, if it's, uh, .com or .org. Um... Let's see. Here we go. It is uh, Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebuyit.org. The Buyit is T-H-E, 
B-A-Y-I-T, Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebuyit.org. Uh, they'll send you the link to uh, watch and participate via Zoom. I hope a lot of people will participate. It starts officially 145. The presentation's at 245, meaning the speeches and the uh, uh, what will hopefully be comforting and important words. Um, okay, so keep that in mind for Sunday, Tish above, And I hope everyone participates, no matter where you are on this planet. Thank you to listener Moshe for your kind comments. I appreciate that. Thank you to the listener who told us about the uh, Team Israel victory over the boulders. Thank you to Schwiger, who's welcoming me back to the Big Apple. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, always mixed feelings when you get back here. I, I love being in this studio. It's real home for, uh, for me to be in this studio and speak to you from this studio, but uh, there is something to being in the Holy Land as much as possible, and all of us need to think about um, the future of the Holy Land for us and our families. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture on the uh, Mishnah Brura is next. You are listening to JM in the AM. This is the Nahum Siegel Network. In this uh, series of lectures, I'm discussing books that uh, really made a great difference in Jewish life and Jewish history. We're always uh, aware that people make a great difference. But there are some times that the book, a certain book published at a certain time for a specific reason, also makes a great difference. And today's book, uh, The Mission of Brura, uh, really is a sea change in Jewish life. It has to be seen that way. There was an article uh, in uh, Tradition uh, 10 or 12 years ago by uh, Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. And uh, in that article, he uh, pointed out uh, the change that has happened in the Jewish Orthodox world over the past 50, 80, maybe even 100 years. Orthodoxy changed from being a societal religion, meaning everybody doing what everybody else does. So if all the stores are closed on Shabbat, so my store is also closed on Shabbat. If everybody in town eats kosher, I eat kosher. It's uh, what I call the Judaism that was a mile wide and an inch deep. And that Judaism did not survive the onslaught of the Haskalah, of secular Zionism, of the left. And it did not survive the onslaught of American assimilation in the United States. And it did not survive here in Israel. Uh, the traditional Jew uh, had... Uh, non-traditional children and perhaps even anti-traditional grandchildren. Because of that onslaught and because of the fact that the rabbis saw the Jewish world slipping away in front of their eyes, we're talking the 1800s and we're talking Lithuania, Poland, the Ukraine. We're not talking about, uh, you know, Kansas City. So because of that, 
the entire focus of orthodoxy changed and it became a book-oriented religion. And the book became the major guiding influence in Orthodox Jewish life. It has to be said that uh, 90%, maybe more, of Eastern European Jewry were not book Jews. They were, uh, the men were uh, literate, the women were illiterate, and uh, even the men, uh, very few were Talmudic scholars, a small percentage of the Jewish world. And so therefore, uh, because of this, this is a completely different orientation. And that's the orientation that we are in today, where, again, how we behave and what rules we follow and what halachot we observe are influenced mainly by books and not by people. In fact, uh, many times the same people who write the books don't follow what the book says in certain instances because of the fact that they, uh, so to speak, are more flexible than the book, but they'll never put it in writing. They'll tell you what to do orally, but they'll never put it in writing, which puts... uh, Uh, which puts the matter at risk, as you can well imagine. The Gona Vilna uh, was really the prime person that understood the changing Jewish world. The Gona saw what Haskalah would do. He was almost a prophet in that area. He said that the first Maskilim are wonderful, observant Jews, and they just want Hebrew and the Tanakh and uh, needed reforms in the uh, Jewish educational system, all of which were good. But the second generation uh, will uh, undermine the authority of the rabbis. The third generation will deny religion. The fourth generation will bring about assimilation which was prophetic. They tell a great story about the, uh, in Vilna, in the 1740s, the leading maskil in town, the head of the Haskala, who was a very, very uh, scholarly uh, person, so he passed away. And he passed away, so the Hever uh, Kedisha said to the Magid in town that he has to come and say the Hespid. He has to eulogize uh, the person who died. The Magid was not anxious to do that, but he was under great pressure from uh, the people who ran the Hevra Kedisha, and he really had to listen to them. So he got up at the Hespid, and he said, this is the first Moscow that I have to eulogize. So I really don't know what to say. But if a lot of other masculine will die, I'll get the hang of what to say. <laughs> well, so uh, the Haskalah 
uh, in the middle of the 1700s, which was uh, a carryover from German Haskalah, which later became German reform, uh, penetrated deep into Lithuanian Jewish society. And because of that, therefore, uh, this different viewpoint of how to uh, keep Jews Jewish, so to speak, uh, became the norm. So the uh, Gona Vilna had a uh, disciple, uh, Rabbi Avram Danzig, who, by the way, is buried next to the Gon. Uh, the, uh, the Gon's remains were at the, the, the Russian communists, when they controlled Lithuania, in their great sensitivity and uh, progressiveness, so they converted the Jewish cemetery into a soccer field and leveled it so that what the Nazis didn't do, they completed. Uh, Rabbi Teitz, Zichrona Levrocha of Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, through uh, his uh, political influence through senators in the United States, etc., received permission from the Russian government to exhume six bodies and rebury them. So one was the Gon, and one was Rabavron Danzig, and then there was the Gerd Sedek, there was a famous uh, Count, a Lithuanian nobleman, who converted to Judaism and was burned at the stake by the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, so uh, the Count... From his grave, there grew an enormous oak tree, which was the symbol of the Jewish cemetery in Vilna. Tomorrow morning here at JMNAM, we will present in its entirety toward the beginning of our program, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the uh, Mishnah Brura. Uh, already eight minutes in, a very fascinating lecture. Information about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, one 800 499 W-E-I-N or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. Either way, you can get information and uh, start your own collection of really incredible and amazing uh, lectures by Rabbi Barrel Wine, which span many, many decades. Achinu B'Yisrael and brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course, the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a uh, a Tuesday here at JMM. Good to be back in the studio. My thanks again to uh, Mark and Avrami and Matis and everybody who played a role in keeping uh, things running smoothly in my absence. And uh, tomorrow morning we are back and we will start at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us for Rabbi Wine's lectures and more. Have a, a fabulous Tuesday. If you don't subscribe to our daily thread, write to Avrami, AF at NahumSiegel.com, AF at NahumSiegel.com. Till tomorrow, NahumSiegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. <laughs>